VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, September the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We are looking forward to speaking with you this morning. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, if you were listening to the program late yesterday morning, I actually got a live update from a caller about the status of the Canada versus Slovenia game at the FIBA World Cup of Basketball. They went on to win, so now they get Serbia tomorrow in the semifinal. The other semi, USA-Germany. Wouldn't it be grand to see the Canadians play the Americans for the World Cup? I want to say congratulations to the members of the Canadian men's masters ball hockey team who just won the world title. So this is told by one of their players. Actually, let's get the players list out of the way here first. Congratulations, Jeremy Bishop from Cornerbrook. Ryan Delaney from St. John's. I think he's originally from Harbour Grace, if I'm not mistaken. Terry Ryan from Mount Pearl. Chris Sparks from St. John's. And then Big Mike Dyke on the point. He's from Gander, Newfoundland, and Labrador. All right, so here's as told by Terry Ryan on his Facebook post. So it's Canada versus the USA. We were up 3-1. The Americans pulled their goal. He scored with 2.35 remaining. Then they struck again with less than a minute to go. Off to OT. They make it into OT. Terry Ryan takes a penalty. Of course, nerve-wracking couple of minutes in the penalty box. Get through it. They kill it off. Go to penalty shots. After nine shots, Canada was up 2-1. The Americans hit the outside of the post. We win. Canada wins, and congratulations not only to our lads, but all the members of Team Canada, the world men's masters ball hockey. All right. So I don't know if you're watching the U.S. Open. You know I am. A couple of quick tennis notes. Mention some of the all-time greats. These are matches that are legendary. 1980, U.S. Men's Open Tennis, and the, it's the 100th anniversary of the uh, tournament that year. So John McEnroe retains his U.S. Open title, beating Born, Bjorn Borg. I mean, the McEnroe-Borg match is absolutely legendary. 1996, uh, Steffi Graf retains her title, beat Monica Seles. That was her fifth and final U.S. singles crown. And this one's notable. 2003, in the single on the men's side, American Andy Roddick won his only career Grand Slam title, beat Juan Carlos Ferrero of Spain. Carlos Ferrero was actually the coach for Carlos Alcaraz, number one in the world on the men's side. And it's notable because Andy Roddick is the last American man to win a Grand Slam tournament, period. 20 years. No American on the men's side has won a, a Grand Slam tournament, which is truly amazing given all the great players they've produced. All right, it was on this date 100 years ago, in 1923, that Interpol was founded, the world's largest international police cooperation organization. They represent some 195 member states. Headquartered in Lyon, France, they got seven regional bureaus worldwide. But here's what's amazing. They have a smaller budget than the NYPD. They don't have formal agents. They don't deal with a lot of some of the crimes that we think Interpol might be related to. So they deal with things like uh, illegally trafficked animals, plundered art and artifacts, animal parts and humans. Here's one. In 2018, Interpol's Operation Thunderstorm conducted almost 2,000 seizures in 93 countries, 48 live primates, 14 big cats, 4,000 birds, 20,000 reptiles, 55,000 tons of lumber, 8 tons of pangolin scales, and 1.3 tons of elephant ivory seized by authorities. Interpol, 100 years in business, which is a lead to crime in this province. So we see the headlines, and, you know, we always have to be cautious when talking about crime because it's not a matter of scaring the wits out of people or to sensationalize things. It's not about hyperbole. It's about the facts on the ground. So in front of the courts at this moment in time, there are 17 homicides. 
That's a massive number. For context, this is information coming from the uh, Director of Public Prosecution's office. There was 13 ongoing homicide cases in 2020, 9 in 2018, 6 in 2015, 10 in 2012. The, uh, the 17 homicides do not include cases like involving death by other alleged criminal activity like impaired driving or criminal negligence causing death. So not only does that speak to the prevalence of crime, the increase in the crime severity index in this province, but the pressures on the Crown prosecutors. So they say, quite simply, they don't have these human resources. There has been some monies put forward to try to bolster the ranks at the Crown Prosecutor's Office. In other provinces, they're being quite aggressive with adding money and prosecutors to keep up with the prevalence and the severity of the crimes we're seeing right across the country. But 17 in front of the courts at this moment in time. It's really quite something, if you look at the news story, to go down, 11 of the 17 here in St. John's, but other judicial areas or centers of the province hearing and seeing these cases as well. So you go down the list, all the names and what they're charged with, and then, of course, it's the 14-year-old. I kind of almost forgot about that, but we also have a 14-year-old charged with the death of a senior, apparently a relation to Mount Pearl. Amazing stuff. So there's a lot to get, I guess, to digest and to dissect inside of those numbers. A lot of it would be pressures and probably root causes dealing with things with like drugs. I mean, we know it to be true. And again, how we have this conversation and to increase the ranks of maybe the RNC and the RCMP, which is big questions about the RCMP's presence here in the province. And yes, the pressures on the Crown Prosecutor's Office. Really amazing stuff. All right. Interestingly, yesterday we were speaking with, had an extensive conversation with Jennifer Williams, of course, the CEO of Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro. And oftentimes when we're talking about hydro-related matters or Muskrat Falls or what have you, we talk about Liberty Consulting. They've been involved with the PUB providing monthly updates for years. And some really important work and oversight that's been conducted by Liberty Consulting. And then lo and behold, yesterday afternoon, in a letter to the regulator, Liberty Consulting is basically cutting ties. They will remain in place to support the PUB until they find another consulting company to take it on. So basically, in Cole's notes, they're saying that they have human resource concerns of their own, but also concerned with the pace with which Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro is looking at replacement options for Holyrood. 490 megawatt generating station that is one of the worst polluters in the country, and it's got to go away. And so there's even reference to diesel uh, turbine. We spoke with Ms. Williams about that yesterday. And here's where the contrast is really quite stark. So Liberty concerned with the pace with which Hydro is proceeding here, but when speaking with Miss Williams yesterday, she was quick to say is that, and not to say it's a gun-shy matter, but she says in years past, Hydro has been accused of not being careful and due diligence and evaluation of options, and consequently, somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 studies are ongoing today. So on one hand, Hydro trying to make sure they do a careful evaluation, and on the other hand, Liberty concerned with the pace with which they're moving. So... It is concerning that Liberty's going away. The work they've done, and obviously there's got to be other consulting companies out there that come in and fill the role that Liberty has played for years in this province, but they're going by the wayside. It'd be great to have someone from Liberty on the show. I've heard uh, reference to one of their head people uh, being quoted in some of the news stories, but it's not quite something, you know. On one hand, trying to be cautious, evaluate all the options, and on the other hand, the consultants say, you're not moving quick enough. From where I sit, and I would imagine for many of you, it's that breakneck pace with which Hydro has moved on some huge decisions that have left us scrambling and stressed about our rates. And Liberty says, you got to move a little quicker than that. 
Anyway, there's a juxtaposition if there ever was one. But if you heard the conversation with Jennifer Williams yesterday, you want to pick up on anything you heard there. And or it was followed by a conversation with uh, uh, Frank Davis, who's the head of Canadian operations with Pattern Energy. We did ask Ms. Williams about some of the concerns people have been voicing. One of them being, what does it mean to my rates if and when, and it will be the case, where there's some interconnectivity between the wind proposals and our grid? In a form of comfort, I think is how it was heard by many, is that if there's any additional infrastructure required, it would be on the bill paid for by the proponent, not by hydro, not by me and you. That's long been some of the worries with big industrial expansion. Remember, it's not that long ago when Alderaan was talking about mining operations in Labrador and for us to be on the hook to build a transmission line. So, sure, if these projects regarding wind, hydrogen, and ammonia proceed, and it looks very likely like they will, or at least some of them will, we are indeed investors of some form because there's a huge federal tax credit available. But any of those additional costs, infrastructure-wise, will be borne by the proponent, by the companies, not me and you, which I think is a good piece of information from Ms. Williams just yesterday. Okay, let's move on to a different industry. One that also comes with some controversy, and that's aquaculture. Now, it's interesting how some of the stories are written about the announcements yesterday. It's the first time in four years that they've had their annual conference called Cold Harvest. You know, the story basically says the province, the Newfoundland and Labrador government, is all in on aquaculture. Once again, it kind of feels like they've always been all in on aquaculture. For the regions that have seen any of these fish farms come to town, it has been an economic savior. So maybe we'll speak with uh, Steve Crew, the mayor of Hermitage, this morning. His area has been rescued by aquaculture. You know, he's talking about the fact like there was 99% tax capture last year and that annual household income that might have been around 20000 now in the neighborhood of 100000 all because of the presence of aquaculture and all the spinoffs it brings. So the government has said, here's a quote from the fisheries minister, Elvis Loveless, yesterday. We're here this morning with lots of investment from companies, investment from the government, and that's going to continue. Now, there was some pretty brutal years uh, for the aquaculture industry, some of it regarding the mass die-offs, some of it regarding some of the global market concerns during the early stages of the pandemic, but they are bouncing back and trying to head towards producing some 50,000 tons of salmon in particular. You know, there's always going to be questions about environmental impact, and so there should be. You know, the government and the companies say they're doing better and have evolved technologically to do better, better with disease management, better to uh, try to avoid the mass die-offs, which they absolutely must, uh, issues with uh, escapes, and we know what the escapes could possibly mean for impact on the wild salmon stock. So the government pretty much all in. Once again, a quote from the minister, we are going to hold companies' feet to the fire in terms of the environment, absolutely. The one problem there is that when government is all in, then they kind of... It's kind of hard to be the regulator, the overseer, you know, to hold an industry's feet to the fire when you are all in. So that's one of those concerns that I think is legit when people bring them forward. There's the announcement of a multi-species research and development fund, $150,000 annually for the next three years, looking at different things beyond salmon, because that's the predominant product being farmed is salmon. So they're looking at wolf fish and sea urchins and the like. So there's some that come with minimal risk, very different from the farmed salmon issue. So the government is all in on the aquaculture industry, if you want to take it on this morning, whether it be from the wild stock and or from the aquaculture side, that's a conversation we're happy to have. 
And speaking of sighs of relief, I guess it was pretty much a nationwide sigh of relief yesterday when the Bank of Canada said they were holding the benchmark interest rate steady at 5 you know, and we can talk about the political implications of uh, various premiers and or the prime minister yesterday reacted to the decision made by Tiff Macklem, who's the governor of the central bank. You know, look, I'm relieved. Like, I hold debt, right? I have a mortgage. I have a line of credit. And many people across the country do. Our household debt loads are through the roof. And it's not helping with all of these. There was 10 consecutive rate hikes. So hold fast at five. I would be interested in taking on the political angle if you're so inclined but then of course mentioned mortgages variable mortgages in particular and even when your mortgage is up for renewal if you're a uh, a solid interest rate holder you're going to get a shock and in the world of housing you know obviously this is the number one concern inside the issue regarding cost of living well maybe you can add food to that because we all have to eat then you look at best practices to try to do things to accommodate housing pressures some of them will be small in impact, some of them not so much. I mean, if we're looking at short-term rentals, for instance, and people will point to the amount and the numbers increased in the short-term rentals and what that means for availability of rent. Okay. So the province has announced that all the short-term rentals have to register with the province, which doesn't really do much beyond a registration. In other jurisdictions, and it's happening nationwide and around the world, trying to understand the implication of a short-term rental. Let's look at Halifax. In Halifax, there's 2,418 active rentals. As of Friday, 1,937 of those were Airbnbs for entire homes. The last 481 were private rooms. They've got new regulations in place. As of September the 1st, both entire unit rentals and bedroom rentals are only allowed in residential zones if they're within the owner's primary residence. Renting out the whole home is allowed when the owner is away. Basement apartments or backyard suites must now be rented out for more than 28 days. So trying to do everything to increase the availability of rental units versus short-term rentals. But then you talk about the confusion with zoning. And this could indeed be part of it. One of the councillors who voted against it says it's possible with a lot of the greys and the unknowns that there might even be streets where you can do Airbnbs on one side of the street and not on the other. That might indeed be a little bit exaggerated just to bolster his vote of nay. But then he goes on to say that this would only be a drop in the bucket to add housing units to the market. He says even if they get it right to the letter of the law and have the enforcement uh, resources available, let's just say they add a couple hundred units to the rental market when they in fact need, just similar to us, they need thousands of units. So I guess you have to pick apart the housing issue one by one. You know, the only way to eat an elephant is a bite at a time. I guess the same thing here because housing is complicated. You know, the country is struggling. Even if there was a commitment by municipalities, provinces, and the federal government to try to deal with the need to build 5.8 million homes by the end of this decade, it's physically and humanly impossible. We just don't even have the people to build the homes. So even if they put the billions of dollars on the table, even if the level of cooperation between all three levels of government was better than ever before, can it even get done? I mean, seriously? We're going to need to build more homes in the next 10 years than we built in the last 30 years. So anyway, maybe the short-term rental issue is picking away at it in some form or fashion. And speaking of housing, I read a story this morning about the fact that people in Channel Port of Basque and on the southwest coast, you know, just about a year after Fiona, la Fiona made landfall, I think, on the 24th of September of last year, still deciding whether or not they're going to stay or, go or they're going to go. 
So if you are one of those families still not sure what the future holds and where you will be building or rebuilding your life and your home, if you want to share your story here on the program, we can do it. And there's already a caller in the queue wants to talk about how the monies are being used and possibly misused in the community, and we can take it on uh, very quickly. So back to school yesterday, and I live in a school neighborhood, and it was extremely busy and active. And I have a little pang of excitement about back to school, even though I have zero involvement. But then you see the stories of the scramble to try to fill the teacher vacancies, notably in Labrador. When we speak with Jordan Brown, for instance, he's the member for Lab West. One of the concerns and the difficulty with which they have in recruiting a teacher to Labrador is, again, related to housing. So as of last week, there was 29 vacancies in Labrador itself. That number apparently is changing day by day as they try to do what they can do to get the teachers in place. And this is an annual problem. I think it's probably a little bit better this year than in years past. I think that was sort of the tone brought forward by the NLTA president, Trent Langdon, the last time we spoke. But those types of vacancies are a problem. Add to it is substitute teachers. So we have heard the stories, some of the miscommunication and the sort of ham-fisted uh, list that's put forward for access to and to understand who the substitute teachers are that may be available. And Mr. Lang makes an interesting point on this. When we don't have the resources to operate an emergency room, we close it. When we don't have the resources to operate a school properly, the school remains open. And consequently, everyone thinks, well, everything's fine. Everything is hunky-dory. The school is open today. But behind the scenes and the scramble by administrators and people trying to backfill for other their colleagues who may be sick or whatever the case may be, so we don't even have enough subs. So any back-to-school commentary, we welcome it as well. Okay, you're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. One of the issues we did not broach, I didn't have time, didn't think of it at the time when I spoke with Jennifer Williams yesterday, was about Beothic Lake. It is indeed a reservoir for hydroelectric uh, uh, generation. So what's happening is water levels are putting some of the artifacts regarding the Beothic at peril. Some have already been lost. So we'll talk with the Mayor of Millertown, that's Fiona Humber, right after this break. And also we're going to talk with Greg, talk about donations for Hurricane Fiona, what's being done with those hard-earned dollars and generously donated dollars, that and more right after this. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two, say good morning to the Mayor of Millertown, that's Fiona Humber. Good morning, Mayor Humber, you're on the air. Hi, how's it going? Doing okay this morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. What can you tell us about what's going on at Piathic Lake? Well, um, this year especially and previous years as well, there's been an issue with high water. So we understand that it's a reservoir and that the water comes up in the early spring. But uh, the problem that we see is that it's being held high for as long as possible for as high as possible for as long as possible. And it's having a huge effect on the shoreline around the lake. How so? Paint us a picture of what's happening on the, on the shoreline. Well, actually, the, <laughs> so um, up at Indian Point, there's a, a nearby Beothic site. And just all around that site, you can see the trees falling down, healthy trees. They are falling into the lake. Um, the rocks are pushed way up against the bank on the lake. There, the shoreline, I mean, the bank on the lake is just eroding. It's eroded probably a foot in the past year just because of high water, and it's getting closer to that Beothic site. What has Hydro said? I'm trying to recall exactly what they said, but I'm sure you can re- recall it quicker than I. Um, basically, I've, I've talked to Hydro about it, and 
they don't really give me an answer on what's to be done. We had a a meeting with Hydro in 2019 about the water levels around the lake. We met in Buckins with concerned residents from communities, and they were going to do a study. They hired Hatch to do a study on the erosion around the lake, and we, despite trying, we haven't been able to get our hands on that study. They they haven't given it to us. We would have to do an, a request for information. So what what is the plan? Because if the uh, my understanding is we've already lost plenty of biotic related artifacts to the water, and if there's going to be an ongoing concern with rising levels and whether or not it's hydro keeping the water levels high longer, is there a plan in place? I know you're not the archaeologist, but is there a plan to excavate to protect the artifacts, or are we still just going to have a back and forth between hydro and your community? Um, I think. There's not a plan that I'm aware of. Now, hopefully there is one, but um, that site actually has been, uh, the archaeologists have looked into it a a little bit, but uh, most of these sites, they actually have multiple layers. They go through thousands of years of history. So it would be quite a big project to get all of the information out of there. I would be more interested in preserving the site rather than excavating it. Sure, of course. But but that's that's my opinion. Yeah, I suppose what we should do on that front is reach out for to a provincial archaeologist, Jamie Brake, who's quoted in this particular news story. So you know, like most things, like everything, once you lose it, you can't get it back. And the Beathic Lake is quite historically significant, given how Beathics scrambled to Beathic Lake and surrounding area to avoid or try to hide from the European settlers. So there's a lot of stuff there required, I would imagine, in my well, in my personal opinion, that needs to be preserved. So I didn't get a chance, and I didn't really think of it at the time when we were uh, speaking with Jennifer Williams yesterday. I will go back to Hydro to see what they have to say about this, their level of concern, what should be done, whether or not the water could be lowered and still accommodate their hydroelectric needs. Uh, anything else on that front this morning, Mayor Humber? Um, well, not really. It's just... The same thing. I mean, there's a, we see as a couple options. They can lower the lower the water level after the first month of um, the spring thaw. That would be a huge help to the shoreline up in that area. Or, I mean, if they want to keep the water levels high, you can look at something like a, a breakwater or something. But I mean, this would all have to be up to hydro because they're the one they're the ones who have control of the lake. Absolutely. And uh, I will do that follow-up to see what they have to say and what their plans would be. Uh, just a couple other things regarding Millertown. So relatively small community, but basically a mining gateway. What has this town looked like since, I mean, the Marathon Gold Ballantyne Lake project was passed through their environmental assessment. There looked to be huge opportunities and tons of people that would be moving in and around Millertown. What's going on? Uh, so we have seen an increase in, in residents, so that's great news for us. <laughs> um, we've seen a few families move back home in hopes to get jobs at uh, Marathon or have maybe already have jobs. Um, we have a, a parking lot for Marathon Gold here because we are the closest community to site. So Marathon utilizes that parking lot for their employees. And uh, we're getting some businesses in town. They're getting some work from Marathon. So there, there is quite a change here in Millertown. It, it's, it's looking good. We're still hoping for more. We want more local employment and more support for local businesses. But, but we're getting there. It's all a work in progress with Marathon. How about the housing issue? Again, I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 50 homes in Millertown. Or is there much in the way of construction to accommodate the population influx? Or is that all too speculative? 
Well, it would be that, that kind of goes back to an issue with Crown Lands, actually. Okay. <laughs> but um, but right now, yeah, we actually have two houses going up in the community right now, and uh, we they've just sold two more two more houses. So uh, we're we are getting an influx. We would like more. Um, but the problem is the land and our ability to get the suitable land with suitable infrastructure. <laughs> and so that's something that we're working on. We've been trying to develop a town plan now for the past uh, couple of years, and that should be, help us to make the steps forward with Crown Lands to get some land back in our name. Other than housing, you mentioned suitable infrastructure. What, what ex- what's an example inside that envelope? Oh, well, the infrastructure, I'm, I'm mainly talking about water and sewer for infrastructure. Okay. That would be our main thing, to get water and sewer to a new area and uh, to start a, a new build of houses. So when you mention the Crown land implication, is that the need for the actual uh, geographical footprint of Millertown to be expanded? Is that what that means? Uh, well, kind of. It, it goes back to Abitibi because Millertown was uh, owned by the A&D company or started by the A&D company, and then the land went off to Abitibi. And when they finished up, um, we were hoping, I think council was hoping to get the land back into the town's name. But at the time, they, we couldn't really afford to do a big survey of the town. And it kind of went to the wayside and the paperwork never got done and it went back to Crown Lands. So actually within Millertown, within our town boundaries, we do have multiple spot areas that are owned by the Crown. And some are being leased. It's it's a big mess. So we're hoping that with the town plan and getting that official, uh, we can move forward with getting this all straightened out and getting our land back to something that would be easier to deal with for new residents coming. Uh, all very interesting. I certainly appreciate our time this morning, uh, Mayor Humber. We will follow up with Hydro, see if we get any additional information for your for your suit for your needs and or for anyone else who's curious about the preservation of those Beothic artifacts, including that Beothic dwelling, which I think is the last one that we know of in that area. Uh, Good to have you on the show this morning. Wish you and the town uh, nothing but the best of luck. Thank you very much. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. That's Fiona Humber. She's the mayor of Millertown. Interesting. Let's go to line number one. Uh, Greg, you're on the air. Uh, Good morning, Patty. Greg Sheaves calling. Uh, I just wanted to discuss some of this uh, affordable housing, housing shortages, et cetera, et cetera, that's going on, I guess, in Canada, really, not only in Newfoundland. But here in Port Basque, our town took on this affordable housing for seniors and they they got you know a bunch of money from federal and provincial government to basically put up buildings to compete against la- like local landlords so there's no incentive for anybody to build new apartments and when they're spending taxpayers dollars it's ridiculous because here they are putting up two buildings four units in each one uh, so they got eight units at a total cost of roughly around $2.5 million. Like, that's 312000 per unit. And if you go to a bank and try to borrow money to put up an apartment building, they'll average you out at around one twenty-five per unit. So realistically, they could have constructed 20 units versus eight, you know. But when you're spending taxpayers' money, it's just so easy to let it go. But being into the apartment business also, the town loves to tax us to death. They want their property tax. They want their water tax. Even for me, like I bought the old hospital downtown back in 86 or whatever it was now and converted to 12 units. I've been paying like 160 a year built into my property tax for garbage collection, 
Now, just a year or so ago, they put a notice in the paper saying, oh, commercial could opt out if you want to look after your own. But they were going to charge me now 160 a unit, you know, times the 12. So now you're getting up to $1,920 a year just to collect garbage. Now, where does that get tacked on to? It's got to go on the rent. So far as I'm concerned, government is the problem. Now, in the meantime, here they have – now, just lately, they purchased – two commercial buildings in our industrial park at about a cost of 750000 and now they're rezoning it for apartments. I couldn't do it. If I wanted to build houses in the industrial park here by my garage, I can't do it. But because the town is involved, they can. But what happened when people donated money to the Red Cross, which I would never do anymore, they gave money in donation to people who lost their belongings in the Fiona hurricane. And I don't know of anyone yet that got any of the money. Now they are using donated money to buy real estate. Then a COA comes in and jumps on board and gives the rest of the money for the purchase. Now that's not their mandate. It's to loan money to new business with new ideas, not to loan money to buy buildings for apartments to compete against existing landlords. Then the government will give out more of our tax dollars to convert these apartments. So when these buildings are all completed and cost-free, who gets all of this rental income to play with? You know, our town, back in the early 70s, had 6,500 people. And today, we're down to like 3,250. And we're the gateway to Newfoundland. But I think the biggest problem that we got is our council has gone in business. You know, they took over the old fish plant a few years ago. They started renting out commercial space. They got a social hall on their fire hall where they had it for like a farmer's ball, but still thought they were competing against the Lions Club. Uh, there was companies bidding on the garbage collection. They took over the garbage collection themselves through Western Regional Waste Management. Now they're getting into department buildings. So anyway, uh, last week I listened to Minister Sean Fraser, who was on your show. And he was suggesting different things and the problems with rental, and they might even suggest rental control. Now, how in the hell did he plan to do that? Because everything is based on fuel cost and government greed. And here's how it works. On a $900 fuel bill, there's $300 tax. That tax goes on logging and manufacturing costs. Then up goes the cost to transport all of those goods all around Canada. Okay, okay before we get into that, let's go back to the housing for a second, because I just want to, because you said yeah. we or they several times, and I wasn't really sure who the we and the they were sometimes. So yeah. this buying apartment buildings, building homes, isn't that exactly what's part of ACOA's post-Hurricane Fiona package or pot of money, which I think is a couple hundred million dollars, if not, if, if not more, over the course of two years? So isn't that exactly what that's for, for rebuilding? Yeah, but the thing is, like, the town the town is getting into rental space, but you're using tax dollars. If if I got to go put up another building, I got to go use my own money, or I got to go to the bank and borrow. But it's so easy to use and waste taxpayers' dollars, and it's not being spent wisely, you know? So why are they competing? If, if the government's 
kept their noses out of some of the stuff and didn't tax people to death, people would be more interested to invest. But they've got us all taxed to death. They want nothing but the max from you. Even when I bought the hospital, I'll give you one example. When I bought the hospital building back in 86, it had a four-inch water line as a hospital. I didn't need that. I reduced it down to a two-inch line. A two-inch commercial line at that time was $900 a year. But because after I got inside and teed it off to 12 apartments, I had to pay 12 times the household rate, which was 3600 a year. So they're going to max you out on whichever little part they can squeeze you on. So what is the incentive to do anything when every time you turn around, government, whether it's federal, provincial, municipal, everybody's squeezing you? So, and now they're into a situation where we got a shortage of homes. And I tell you how bright they are because they bring in all of the immigrants, which I don't, I got nothing to say about immigrants because we need them. I know that. But they didn't have a plan in place to house them. So, and it's the same as years ago when they started collecting all these tires. They had no plan. They wanted to charge the money to collect the tires. But they transported tires from Port of Basque by DD Transport all the way to Argentia until the pile got so large, they said, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do with them? Then they had to turn around and pay $4 million to load all those tires on trailers, ship them back through Port of Bass, across on the ferry, up to Quebec, and give them to Quebec to burn into a power plant. So it goes to show that the government sometimes has no plan in place when they start off these bright brainstorm ideas. But it was, it was worse. Using, okay. I'll let you yeah. finish it up. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah. No, no. What I'm saying is, like, they used people that donated money to the Red Cross. They didn't donate it to buy buildings. And ACOA, I know because years ago, like, I went to ACOA when I was in the construction business, and you need a new idea to borrow money. You can't, you can't uh, get a loan of money to compete against an existing business. It has to be something that's not in your area. So... Why is ACOA using our tax dollars to come into Port of Basque to buy commercial property? Well, I don't know, and nor do I know if that's what's happening, but ACOA is involved because ACOA is the arm of the federal government who's evaluating, adjudicating, and distributing the federal government money. So it's not that they're involved as a new new arm of their business or a new part of their mandate. This is simply the federal government put the money there. It's been administered through ACOA. But but the thing is, Patty, it's still our tax dollars. Yes, I know. We're, so the government doesn't have their using, own money. I know, but they're using my tax dollars to come into town to compete against me, which is definitely not right. I don't care which division of government tries to weasel their way around it, but they're using my money. The same as all this tax dollars that's on the fuel. Same as all of the municipal tax dollars. They're spending my money. Now, in the meantime, I got my apartment building. I've got to do all my own servicing. I've got to do my own snow clearing. Who's going to do the snow clearing for those buildings? The town with our equipment that we pay taxes on to supply. That's the kind of stuff that goes on. Now, with these buildings being... Very, very quickly, Greg, because I'm late for the break, but I'll let you wrap it yeah. up quick. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. But like I say, with those ta- those buildings being put in there by government, paid for 100%, 
Now, all of this rent money starts flowing in. Who's going to get to play with it? You'll never know where half of it goes. You'll say some of it went into maintenance. You don't know. It'll go anywhere. So that's the kind of crooked work that goes on with government, regardless of federal, provincial, or municipal. Well, and one thing for sure, to to get, one thing yeah. for sure, it's uh, a different kintle of fish spending my money versus someone spending government money. That much we all know to be true. Uh, I appreciate the time, Greg. I have to get to the break. Okay. Thanks for your time, Patty. My pleasure. Take care. Okay. Talk right. to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take that break. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Mayor Hilda Whalen. You're on the air. Good morning. Happy Thursday, Patty. Happy Thursday to you, too. Uh, you were good enough to send along a copy of a letter that you had written to a variety of people, including the Chancellor at Memorial University and the President, which is Neil Bowes, or oh, Chancellor Earl Ludlow, and Neil Bowes, who's the interim president. What's the content of the letter? What's your concern? Well, my concern is the lack of uh, practice-ready assessment team. Uh, we have... Uh, here right now in, in the province approximately 300 applications being processed uh, some will need practice ready assessment a lot of them some uh, hopefully they're picking out the ones that don't need assessment that are currently working in Canada and uh, put them through these paces of at the physician and surgeons a little quicker but when they get down to the the ones that need practice-ready assessment, we have a problem. We only have 10 seats available. Now, we could have as high as 40 to 50 uh, doctors that need this. Uh, I believe that uh, the, the university should have stepped up to the plate. It's a public university. It's one of the highly subsidized universities in any government in can in, by any government in Canada, and we, the province, has paid billions, three hundred million this year over the years in the last forty, fifty years. For that reason, I think that we should not have had to ask that they should have stepped up or felt obligated to step up and to give us the seat. Now, is uh, but help me understand this a little clearer. Aren't okay. these assessments? based on national standards and then of course all concerning with the uh the college here because it's not memorial university or the med school that has any control over this standard test right no they when they they come in they come in with their credentials the credentials are verified by uh, eastern health and uh, you know whoever the area contacted where they the schools etc no they all their credentials are verified they then go through physicians and surgeons and a lot of the the well, most of these applications will go through a 10-week what they call practice ready assessment which is assuring that they do uh, and are uh, capable and, and, and to do the work. Uh, and rightfully so. so, but my point is that I don't think that the university has 
any role in this period. This is very much in the hands of national standards, and then each of the provinces would have their regulator or the, or the oversight body, in this case, the College of Physicians and Surgeons. That's where that issue lies, not at the med school, right? Or am I wrong? I could be. Yeah, you're right there. That It gets to that point where they get to uh, uh, the physician and surgeons. But uh, practice-ready assessment is something that's done uh, in every province in Canada. The problem that I'm having with it is uh, most of them, a lot of them get it outside the university. Ours is controlled by the university. So we didn't have the ability like the ones that have the, it outside the university. They, if they need 40, they can, they can place their 40. But we don't have that option. So I'm thinking if you're going to uh, control how many we have, then you have to open up as many as we need or uh, take some of that $300 and between the the medical association, the university, uh, to set up outside. These doctors aren't going to wait around until next year to get practice-ready assessments done. They're going to other provinces, and especially when the province knows and they say that they're going to practice-ready assessment, that that other province knows now that they have been put through all their paces, all their credentials are verified, and they're ready for ready practice assessment, and they'll welcome them just for that. They'll duplicate it in the other provinces. That's the problem here, is that we've got, for instance, there's one specific group of doctors, Canadian-born, yeah. trained abroad, can't get a residency position. So I'm whether or not you go very through... very well aware of it. Right, but even if you go through the practice-ready assessment, if you cannot get a residency position, that's where the colleges just have a stranglehold on this stuff. Of course, they will have direct relationships with the medical schools in the provinces where they're set up, and yes, of course, graduates from their own schools should would indeed get priority for residency positions, but apparently it's virtually impossible. I mean, we have hundreds of foreign trained doctors that would yeah, be more than willing to come thousands. Okay. Try right. thousands. Okay, thousands. Uh, I know Mary Pollock. She's the president of International uh, uh, Doctors Train Broad. Uh, they call them IMGs, right? And uh, yes, there's there's thousands of them, uh, and I don't know why. Like even here at New New Clinic, we always used to have the residencies here, and all of a sudden a few years ago, like they disappeared. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's the same in all other provinces, right? But uh, there is a pool of doctors out there that they are IMGs. They did train abroad, and they are qualified and are working right now in Canadian hospitals. So they they are qualified and and they and should be here and uh, go to ready practice assessment and get into the, the the fold because I mean people are 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 waiting and waiting and this is just getting too long and uh, that's the bottleneck. It's an important so, yeah. topic. Uh, you know, I know Mun is expanding the number of seats at the medical school from 80 to 90. So we're going from 65 to 75. Those seats will be from people from this province. Last year, 42 graduates signed three-year contracts, about a yep. dozen more than the year prior. So we're, I think that's all very pragmatic, and it makes all the sense in the world versus a new l- l- law school or what have you, which we don't need. What we need are more exactly. seats for healthcare professionals. Uh, important Absolutely. topic. I'm glad you made time. Anything else quickly, Hilda, before I say goodbye? No, I just wanted the public to be aware that this is an issue, that we we do have these uh, uh, doctors who need 
ready practice assessment and I think we should have we need 40 seats we should have them and I think it should be incumbent on the university to provide them inside or outside Appreciate the time. Nice to have you on. Thank you. you. Bye bye. That's the mayor Hilda Whalen, of course, the mayor of Whitburn. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the leader of the NDP. He's the member for St. John's Centre. That's Jim Din. Jim, you're on the air. Thank you, Patty, for having me. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Um, I just want to take a uh, some time. I want to tie three topics that you brought up, and uh, together with the well-being announcement that was a well-being week announcement that was made yesterday, if I may. And actually, I was planning to be on your show yesterday to talk about the opening of school, but I went to that announcement, and I went to that announcement expecting uh, something practical to deal with the uh, the the issues I've discussed with you on on your show before, and and the issues, the very real issues that uh, my my office has been dealing with uh, with people who are calling with regarding housing and uh, and and the other affordability and those uh, and those issues we've talked about. So, I guess what I was looking for was something practical, something that's going to actually address the well-being uh, of people in this province, and I didn't hear it. I would say that if it's about raising awareness, I think people in this province are already aware. Uh, certainly, I've heard you discuss it on your show, uh, and it's 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 I, it time has come to do something, and maybe that's what what, uh, what I'm looking at. The pra- lack of a practical approach has led it has led to some of the issues that um, well some of the issues that you brought up this morning I'll start with school staffing and well-being and about uh, the social determinants of health and we've been calling for some very practical measures I'm listening to your story about uh, you know the the, the lack of staffing um, in the school system, and I heard uh, Trent talk about the uh, about the fact, you know, that an emergency room without staffing gets shut down. Schools carry on, with, leaving the impression that somehow things are 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 going along swimmingly, and that's not the case. I'm thinking in terms of the the, the drug overdoses and the mental health issues that we've uh, that have come to that have been very prominent in the media in the last few weeks about the need for maybe more school counselors in the school system. Uh, we can assume that there are children who are coming to school who are already coming from families where addictions and mental health issues are are significant. We can talk about the need for for allocations, teacher allocations that are based not only on the number of students but on the needs in that classroom. And Patty, I can tell you that when 2013, when I was first president, and I know I've talked to you about it at that time when I was in that role, uh, the NL- when I was president of the NLTA, the same issues were being um, were being discussed and they were brought being brought to the forefront. And here we are, over 10 years uh, 10 years later, and and these problems haven't been addressed. I'm going to look at some practical solutions even. Those are one thing. But you look at the number of what we call fractional units, the 0.25s or the 0.5s, um, and trying to get people to, to, to go and work in these positions, sometimes in a community where they also have to try and pay for rent and, uh, and so on and so forth. They are not going to take them, and they're not going to stay here. 
So one of the things we've brought up is that we uh, in, in government we need to eliminate the need of these these part time or these fractional units so that at least people have a chance of having that full time earning a full time salary and make it viable for them to go there. The other thing is that we want to address some of the social determinants of health. Start in the school system, whether it looks at a school lunch program uh, that that's fully funded uh, and, and puts uh, and puts uh, food in people's in, in students' bellies. Simple as that. Housing. Yesterday, when I attended that meeting. I the fir, uh, just as I was uh, we, while I was waiting, a contact by a mom uh, with who, a single mom. Her three children were facing eviction at the end of the day. I I, I don't know what happened to them. I, I've got to follow up on that again today. I've got another couple who were had had their tent taken by the city. They were calling me from um, from McDonald's on, on Torbay Road. So I've I've talked about this the need for more non market community-based housing. And and right now, the other issue is I'm getting it from across the province of people facing enormous rent increases, not the 2% or so that uh, that the government is saying is, is, is the norm here, but in the 50% range of, of increases of $300 a month. And this is for seniors on fixed income. And some of them are now facing the prospect of being homeless. And I'll bring it back to the the the, the topic you were speaking to uh, this morning a bit, and and your and the interview yesterday, with regards to the the Liberty Consulting Group pulling out. And I guess the one line that stands out in your report uh, in the news report that's on your page is to do with the secure and affordable electric energy future. And that there's obviously now, I'm picking up from that, that there is some concern about that. Uh, we've known the need to come up with an alternative to the whole we generating uh, plant. We know that Muskrat Falls was uh, supposed to uh, to answer that. And here, uh, I guess the question I, I've got to worry about and the question that people in this province got to worry about, are we facing the possibility of another dark NL? Or are we uh, worried about, will prices now increase to the point where they become unaffordable for people who are already struggling? Well, I, I, so, you know, I guess, on that point, I, I, okay, go ahead. No, 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 and I'm I'm going to finish it with this. I think in in the end what I'm looking for is the practical solution. I'm not looking for two weeks or a week. Where I I want these are tough problems. I'm not I'm not ignoring that fact. But uh, the uh, government has known about that. These issues have been on the radar for quite a while now. This is not just this just didn't come up because uh, you you brought it up. This has been known for a while, and I think it comes to time that what I'm looking for, uh, you know, I, I guess what I find uh, you can probably hear the frustration in my voice is what I'm looking for is something that's going to help me help the people who call into my office, um, and uh, and that and that there's going to be a, re- a, a solution. Yesterday was announced, Patty, that they're going to implement a social navigator. Well, we already have them. They're called constituency assistance, and the social navigator is going to direct people towards services such as income support and housing and so on and so forth. That's what we do, and we're already hitting a wall. So uh, I guess, you know, when I'm looking at it right here, there are some practical solutions here or some first steps we could take. I just want to see government to take that, do that hard work and take them. Well, I'd like to pick some of this apart, because that was at least a dozen things that you broached there. Uh, in the opening this morning. So how about this? Do you have the time? I can put you on hold for the news, come back, and we can kind of pick them apart a little bit better. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. 
I'm going to be doing that for sure. No problem. Okay, let's go. That's Jim Dinner on hold. When we come back, we'll pick up that conversation, then we'll speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's rejoin our conversation with NDP leader Jim Din on one. Jim, you're back on the air. Good morning again. Thanks, Patty, for having me on again. No problem. Okay, so let's try to pick this apart a little bit. Let's start with rent. Yep. So what exactly are you suggesting need or could or should be done there? Because I think you made a brief mention of rent control. So rent control, if it, it gets implemented, it needs vacancy control as well. But then you also added in non-market housing. From where I sit and where I look at other provinces that have implemented rent control, we are absolutely talking about being almost exclusively non-market housing being added because taking away incentives for developers to build means that the government is going to build. So walk me through what you think the rent issue is. So I'm looking here, uh, and and I've been thinking about this problem for quite a bit in in the last bit, especially as I've been getting calls mostly from seniors who just don't have the capacity to absorb the increases. So we're talking about people who had an increase in January past and are facing another uh, increase, let's say, this January. In some cases, it's gone from like $700 up to $1,200. There's just no way uh, that they are are going to uh, to afford it. uh, and that's people who are on uh, on fixed incomes could be earning a minimum wage job. So part of this is, I think, is there a way? Uh, like if uh, if and I'm and I'm and Patty, I should point out, I'm talking, I'm specifically focusing on the large uh, the large uh, uh, landlords uh, like the the REITs, uh, these uh, real estate in- income trusts, and the and the landlords here who have multiple properties, 300 properties or whatever, and and they've basically got the market cornered, but. In some ways, maybe it should be regulated, like the uh, what we do with the electricity rates. So, uh, make an application. Here's the if you're going to make something above the uh, if a landlord is going to be increasing rent beyond what uh, I guess the uh, uh, the two percent or the what whatever the cap is, that they would have to uh, make an application to justify this. But otherwise, we're going to be we're going to have a bigger problem on the hand with uh, with more with a lot of people who are now uh, going to have no place to live and. Uh, or, or no place affordable, or we're going to have other problems. The other thing with the non-market housing, I was with St. Vincent de Paul uh, for over 30 years, and when when uh, when I was president of that organization, we actually uh, built the 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 conference built a. Um, a, a, a six-unit apartment building. Was, we, we more or less were, I guess, like the dog that caught the, uh, the the school bus. Or in this case, we 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 it's probably a little bit above our league. But we have an apartment, um, an apartment, a small apartment uh, unit that uh, six units. And the money, the rent is around is less than six hundred dollars. It's been maintained like that for ten years, but it's also the money is going into uh, the money, the, whatever uh, amount of profit, if you want to call it, is being redirected back into the uh, into the unit. The reserve funds are set up so that the uh, that, that that the building will be maintained. Uh, but what's not happening is that we're, we're not out to make a profit. It's about keeping the uh, the units uh, uh, the units livable for people. 
the, and, and stable. The other part, uh, we met with the uh, the, the, the community, the uh, the Cooperative Housing of Asso- Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. They have money. They don't have money and to purchase property, which is where they need. But they do have. They're able to uh, the, a cooperative keep rents low and affordable. People have a lifetime uh, the ability to live in, the, in their home for a lifetime. Um, there could be more investment in an organization like that so that they can purchase properties, fix them up, they would ha- and, and, then ha- uh, and then at least make sure that there's affordable homes for people. So with rent control, I think it comes down to uh, some sort of stabilization uh, of this and, and so that we're not seeing these exorbitant rents. If it was 2%, I can understand the increase. But right now, in some of the, the, the uh, it's not just here in my district. It's in Gander. It's in uh, it's in districts uh, in other communities outside the the, uh, the city. It tells me that there is a problem, uh, that there is an issue here. We're going to hit a crisis, especially with seniors and, and those on fixed incomes and limited incomes. So that's, that's one part of the solution. But I do think that, yes, government uh, is probably going to have to do the investment itself in, uh, in, in non-market housing, as it did the federal government way back in the 70s would have done. They got out of it, downloaded it onto the provinces, and we've had this deficit building for a while. But I do think you get a, a bigger bang for the buck. Or you, if, you're, if we're going to go with the private developers, then maybe it comes down to that part of this, is part of the agreement that if, if, if government, especially if government land is going to be used, is that there must be a, man, a mandate of a, a percentage of, uh, of housing units that are below uh, market rental, and they must be maintained. Because I, I think one of the things you – I was listening to you this morning, and you talked about – I'm looking at in in the teaching and some of the other aspects. We're paying for this. In long, it's going to cost more money to fix it than to at least be proactive. And that's my. We're already hit in a crisis situation now. I know what my office is struggling with. I can only assume that other MHAs and constituency assistance and other organizations deal with homelessness and how are facing the same thing. I don't know if that makes it clear, but feel free to ask. Sure. Okay. Brent control, if implemented, like in PEI, it's, I think, 2% or 2.5%, yeah. which is helpful. But I think the one problem that may come from it, because if we happen to look at what's happened elsewhere, right? In yeah. 2017, 2018, for a brief period, Ontario implemented rent control. There was a thousand units that immediately went from being available for rent to turn into condominiums. So while the rent control or vacancy control will help the already built units, I think it really puts us in a pickle when we talk about the need to add, and this is federal government numbers, 5.8 million homes by the end of the decade, which is humanly impossible anyway. But with rent control, all the incentive for developers goes by the wayside. That's been, been the case elsewhere. So it can help people who are renting today. But if we're talking about the need to expand the housing market, to build more homes, affordable and otherwise, that really puts the onus strictly on the government. That would be straight up non-market housing. Because as a developer, look, housing is no, no longer a place to lay your head. Housing is a yeah. significant contributor to GDP. So the mind shift required to get to where we need to be for affordability issues is going to be as complicated as anything that we're dealing with in this country, including healthcare, because rent control helps me as a renter today, but for the graduates from university who are not already in the rental market, they might not even have a unit to look at. So we might go from 3% vacancy to 0% vacancy in five years because no one's going to want to build. That becomes a problem. That, that, then it's incumbent on the government to build every unit. And, then, and that's a fair point. However, if that's the case, then 
I, I guess if there's a if if it's a disincentive, we don't have it now, and and we're already in this crisis. The the incentive to uh, be, and I, and I will argue here too, uh, Patty, it, it, that you, you're, we're already seeing people being moved out of rental units. Uh, because uh, landlords are looking to uh, they're, they're looking to bring out the clients and who can pay more, uh, who can pay a higher rent. So even without uh, it, it, you know the 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 disincentive of uh, rent control, we're already seeing a, a, a shortage here, and we're already seeing. I know people who being uh, uh, who are calling uh, into the office uh, because there's that demand. There is, uh, I guess, whether it's the people moving into the city, but we're already seeing people who are. And, and being moved out, or once they find out that that, they, that the person is on income support, that they're not interested in renting. But the fact is, is that even right now, uh, there I'm not seeing the I guess the private uh, the 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 private market step up to the plate. And if anything else, I will have to argue that most of the issues that are coming here with regards to rent and the evictions and uh, and the substandard living conditions basically come from around the uh, the the uh, the private rental system it's really from the uh, really do i get uh, a, a lot of complaints uh, not that i don't but uh, from uh, whether it's the public housing or st john's housing there are issues there no doubt about it but uh, most of the issues i'm dealing with are with people in in in, uh, in private rental agreements uh, and people who probably need support who aren't getting it those are some of the key issues there. sure uh, i mean Fair point. my home is worth what someone's willing to pay so is my apartment yeah. and that's the problem here and even if you talk about the private sector getting involved in building these units can we possibly like, pick a number of whatever affordable might be for a one or two or three bedroom apartment yeah. can you even build them and actually with quality and have them reflect an affordable rate because it's become the business. Again, a home is no longer where you lay your head in this country. When the federal government stepped away from affordable housing and their, their role in, then it became the GDP concern, right? It went from somewhere to right. be out of the elements to part of my portfolio. So I don't even know if we can actually build in the private sector an affordable unit that's actually built with quality and insulated properly. And that's the argument, I guess, when it comes to a, a more of a non-market uh, community based organized or community based approach and I think that comes down to it. I understand that if uh, that if you're a, a builder you're looking to make a profit and I and I will tell you that the apartments we built there they are nice uh, they are that they that we built at that time are pleasant and and a part of it is that we I, we used to visit homes delivering food hampers we used to deliver home uh, to uh, some of the places were so uh, I guess the, uh, the phrase I used to use at the time I would not put my worst friend my uh, worst enemies uh, dog in these places uh, they're that they're that terrible but I think in many ways uh, that if uh, a not non-market approach whether it's a community organization and we have plenty of organizations out there that do this do this well is at least you know if the focus is on providing services and and and, and not on the profit then you have this option for those who are uh, who are okay. at the margins already, and that's where I'm going with the petty. But the fair, it's a good discussion on that. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Me, my purchasing power has been severely diminished. Right. So input costs up, my purchasing power down. So how do we even build an affordable unit? It, certainly, the private sector can't. 
and it doesn't make you a bad person to be in business and want to make money. That's why you're in the business, right? So that would be the biggest question that the country has to face. With the input costs up, the cost of trades, cost of materials, uh, permits, fees, timelines, can you build an affordable unit in the private sector and make a dollar? The short answer there is probably not. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Ted's there to talk about the Kyle. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Ted. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Oh, it's another bad day. It's, uh, it's muggy, but it's uh, getting better. Patty, I'm not going to take up much time because usually, over the years, whenever I do it, and I've done a lot with you on any topic, I usually, I usually get my facts straight, okay? So, but this, <laughs> I just got the phone this morning. Actually, there's two ships involved, the Kyle and the Caribou. Okay. Uh, what prompted my call was when I, my last conversation I had with you, I think it was last week, and at the end of the program you said, Ted, good luck with your paintings. I remember, right? Well, I'm telling you, people are listening to your program because I usually go to the coffee shop like every morning, probably around 6, right, or 7, right? And lo and behold, I'm sitting down having a coffee in walks with one gentleman you know just from, from your program, uh, auctioneer Walt Mercer retired. He's been on your program a couple of times. Okay. He said, "Ted, you might be interested in this." And he comes in with the, a large picture of the caribou. Okay. I've, I last time I saw a picture of the caribou or uh, years ago was a small one in my grandmother's house. A lot of Newfoundlanders after that she was sunk there in '42. You know the history on that probably better than I do. But anyway, this was a bigger bigger picture okay so i'm going to get that framed and then the other auctioneer friend of mine the fellow that was born in ireland but he you don't like to use his name lo and behold he comes in with a painting of the kyle okay so thanks to your uh, thank you and uh i will uh comment on the i was fascinated this morning on the history of the kyle okay i got they googled it up for me and i'm getting uh, walter to print it off that I, I always looked at the Kyle as just something that uh, went back and forth to Labrador or involved with the seal fishery. Yeah, and I'm sure, I'm sure if Dr. Phil Earl is listening to me this morning. He can elaborate on this much more than I can. But there's a very interesting background on that Kyle from what I read this morning. Not only, not only from the fishery and everything, but that uh, wreckage there down, what's the name of that one in St. Lawrence? Tuxum or uh, the... The Tuxum, yeah. Yeah, okay. She was involved Tuxum. in the search and rescue there. Mm -hmm. uh, she was also involved in the... Um, oh, my God, uh, the, the, the lady that uh, member went to fly the plane air. What was her name? Amelia Earhart. Yeah. She had uh, crashed earlier, okay. She was in... Kyle was involved in that. Not, not that's the one. And then there was another one that Walter brought to my attention this morning. Uh, the old glory, I think, or something. They, uh, you know. So the history of that is I'm so fascinated with that history on that particular on that particular boat because you know I even at my age sometimes you say oh that's the Kyle she's back in Fort Labrador right. I will get I will definitely he will get his wife to have that printed up for me. And the on the the caribou, uh, like I said, oh, I had only seen a small picture. But now that I've gotten involved for the last few months, you know, a small gallery here, the uh, I've uh, 
contacted the my artist friend over in Trendy Bay who also does framing. I don't mind mentioning his name because he's an artist, Wayne George, right? And I'm going to get that one framed because that's okay. a big one. I had never seen in all my years the big picture of the caribou. All I saw was a small one. I remember going up over my grandmother's stairs. Now I'm going back a long time. And a lot of Newfoundlanders had that picture of the caribou. Uh, uh, Let's take them one at a time. So the the Truxton, of course, the other ship involved in that wreckage off St. Lawrence was the Pollux. When it came to the Collier, between Carbonair and Labrador, that's absolutely true. She ran aground, I can't remember exactly when, uh, maybe 1967, something like that. That was actually part of the Alphabet fleet. What that was, it was part of the Reed Newfoundland Company, of which still has implications in this province regarding the Reed lands that they own. The Caribou was torpedoed. Uh, can't remember exactly when that was. 1942. But it was 1942, sometime in October. That used to be thrice weekly between the province and North Sydney, and it was downed by a German submarine U-69, tank in about five minutes. So, yeah. yeah that was a Newfoundland right, Railway right. passenger van. Uh, I've only from what I've read this morning. Now, okay, I got the, inf- the information is there. You are 100% correct. Okay. She went down five minutes, okay, and... Uh, so many miles I was close to Port of Basque, I think it was, okay? But, like, I, uh, I, I, I would suggest to a lot of people to, uh, I'll touch base on the caribou, which, you know, I suppose I should have done one ship at the time, but I more or less called just to say thank you because, I mean, Walter is definitely listening to your program because they came in with this, and both of these gentlemen, I remember I told you I had a couple of people that look out for me, but I mean, but not physically. But if they see something of interest going around to the like the real estate sales and that, right, they usually put me onto it. Okay, but there's one thing I do know about the caribou. It's the large picture, as you know, as a man that's involved in this stuff. That's what I'm interested in getting a frame. But the uh, two of the crew members, uh, the names are under two, and this was pointed out to me by a good friend of mine at the coffee shop, two of the crew members, uh, that uh, there was 101 survivors. Okay, that's not on there, but I found that out. But two of the crew members from the, on the, uh, yeah, on the Caribou uh, were from Bay Roberts. One was a bride Fitzpatrick. Of course, you know, God have mercy on their souls, they went down. And the other gentleman was a man French from that's my hometown, actually, where I was born, from Bay Roberts. So, you know, it's interesting to me, and the history, you know, is interesting. And I was fascinated with the not only the caribou thing, but uh, and yeah, you were mentioned about the U-boat or something. Uh, U-69, yeah. it. And the skipper, there was a, I think there was a dis- destroyer that escorted the, uh, uh, the caribou, but I think the orders were... Uh, from the, the command there to try to sink the um, uh, try to sink the, the U-boat. Okay, I'm not 100 percent sure. Yeah, if I'm if I remember correctly, the uh, cruiser that would accompany the caribou was coincidentally named the Protector, if I'm not mistaken, which is sort of ironic. I think you're 100 percent correct again. Mr. So there was like 40 odd crew. Uh, there was almost yeah. 200 other military passengers, and you mentioned yeah. a couple of fellows from Bay Roberts. There um, was a actually man and a woman. A okay, man, man and a woman. woman. Yeah. The skipper, the commander of the vessel, was a fellow named Tavener. I can't remember you're his first right name. You're right on the mark. 
mixer. And he, was, yeah, he died, know. and he had two sons that were also part of the leadership on the boat. Their positions, I can't remember. One of them was named Stanley. I can't remember the other guy's name, but they all three died. You're 100% correct, Paddy, and I, and I only know this from just glancing at it because I'm, I'm definitely... Uh, when I say I'm going to do something, you know, the, the boys, they know what I'm like, right? I will have Wayne George. I contacted him. He's very busy now this time of the year with his own little gallery and that, right? But he does the framing for me for some stuff that I got picked up. Okay. Say it's got no frames on it, you know? And, and the, uh, what prompted me was more or less, I've always been, like you and I have always had a great conversations over the years, and I mean that 100%. And when you said, Ted, good luck with your painting. How cool! I, 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 I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, I guess they say the good Lord works in mysterious ways. But when I went in, and both honorable gentlemen came down, one had a painting of the uh, of the uh, the Kyle. I've got that out. And, uh, I got to get okay. a hanger for that. And the other one was the one that I was really was the size of the picture of the caribou. Okay, and I did find out this. There was a hundred and one survivors on that ship when she went down. She was sunk in 1942. But listen, thanks for your time, and uh, it's always a pleasure. Appreciate yours, Ted. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, Some famous wreckages uh, there. Let's take a break. When we come back, Steve Carew, he's the mayor of Steve Carew. He's the mayor of Hermitage of Sandyville. He's in the news. Why? Big announcement regarding the province's all-in governmental, all-in position on aquaculture. Mayor Carew, right after this. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of Hermitage, Sandyville. That's Steve Crew. Good morning, Steve. Or Mayor Crew, pardon me, you're on the air. <laughs> Good morning, Benny. Thanks for reaching out, man. Happy to have you on the program. You and I have talked about in the past about what aquaculture has meant to your community. So I suppose you're nothing but chuffed with yesterday's announcement coming from the government. Yeah, it's just more positive news for the uh, for the industry here, especially uh, at the conference here, which is uh, you know well attended and uh, we're all organized here by Nelly again this year, and uh, we're enjoying it to the fullest and uh, learning uh, learning a lot of things, learn as much as we can. Let's just paint the picture here because, before, let me couch it. Aquaculture, there's plenty of concerns. Disease management, mass die-offs, escapes, and other concerns that people rightfully speak to. But on the economic side, and then we'll get to the environmental side. On the economic side, what was it like in Hermitage, Sandyville, before aquaculture? And what is it like today? Uh, well, you know, it's complete, completely different. I mean, uh, prosperity is uh, a lot different than there now before uh, most people were working 14, 15 weeks just enough to get their EI, and then they got for the rest of the year until the fish plant opened again. And right now, we're, the difference is now most people are working, uh, you know, 52 weeks of the year. Uh, the wife is working on the fish plant or the husband, and vice versa on the on the farms. And I mean, most families now are, you know, making between the two of them probably over $100,000. So, I mean, you know, it's good jobs in our area, and uh, you know everything. Everything's going great. I mean, we got just about zero unemployment. Anybody that wants to work is working. I mean, we even had uh, eleven foreign workers in Hermitage this year, something we've never ever seen before. So you see how big the agriculture industry has gotten, and it's only going to get bigger. So we're trying to adjust and be ready for it when it does. Well, so what do proposals look like in your area for it to grow? Like, what's on the table? 
Well, uh, Cook Aquaculture is, uh, you know, always expanding into uh, other suites. And we got Greggy and L uh, right now over in Marystown, uh, getting set up, and then they're over to move to Bay's West. And uh, boys in, Bay, in, you know, up around the uh, Round Counter uh, East, or uh, not Round Counter East, but Round Counter West area, Bur- Virgil, here just in from Virgil, Francois area. So it's growing leaps and bounds uh, very fast, right? What do you say to folks who say, well, you know, what about the mastiffs? What about disease management? What about all the escapes? Because obviously you'd have anglers living in your community as well. So, yes, it's one thing to have a job and be able to pay the bills and pay your uh, municipal taxes, what have you. But how do you react when people say, well, what about the environment? Well, I mean, the companies that are down here, you know, are very responsible to the environment. I mean, you know, they're always uh, under scrutiny because of it. So, I mean, because they are, I mean, they're trying to do their best to... uh, keep the environment at number one in their minds and uh, I mean we have beach cleanups and stuff like that down there now which we know on that through summer and the difference you know from when we started to where it is now is unbelievable and uh, we're you know the, the environment is the number one thing we don't want people coming down and you know and seeing anything that's out of sorts or whatever so I mean these companies are being very responsible and they've come a long way and you know we've helped them come a long way and it's all a learning process for everyone but from where it was to where it is now, I mean, it's very positive. Yeah, because, you know, you would think that the, uh, the companies themselves would want to do whatever they could do because their social license runs out if the environmental problems continue to stack up. Have they changed the way they farm in the pens in your area? Because remember, when some of these big die-offs happened, we were told the same thing a couple of times in a row, is that there was a lack of oxygen, and the, uh, the temperatures pushed them further deep, further congested, lack of oxygen, consequently die-off. Then they talked about putting in aerators and deeper pens themselves. Has that happened in your area? Yeah, I mean, when technology changes, and I mean, it's like uh, you live and learn, I guess, and, you know, everything gets incorporated into these knit pins, and uh, the companies that are building them are always looking to make them better or whatever and try to, you know, try to get it so that nothing happens uh, with the environment and whatnot. So we've seen big changes when it comes to the knit pins. I mean, I was on the suit only a month ago. I mean, from where I was there, say, 10 years ago to now, I mean, it's unbelievable. Right? And I mean, they're doing great jobs with technology. They're going to Norway and they're bringing back the technology that they're using over there. And uh, so, I mean, everything that's happening in Norway is happening there. It's just over there. They're far advanced, but we'll get there eventually. Uh, anything else you want to tell us about your community over the summer or something the residents need to look forward to in the in the coming days or months or weeks or years? Um, no, we're, you know, with the, the fish plant now, they're doing some upgrading uh, at the fish plant there. And we're hoping to get more infrastructure in because we're out of space down there because of the growing agriculture industry. And uh, I just like to all those namesayers, uh, Patty, include, you know, and including yourself if you like to come down. I mean, unless you see it, you, you don't know, nobody knows what they're talking about. you got to come down and see it, go out on the pins, cook out caught, you're going to be too glad to take it out or mow it or whatnot. I mean, you, you need to come and see it. And, you know, and unless you do, there's no good to talk about it because what's going on down there is very positive. And, you know, we're, we're, we're open to keep the positive news going. Like I always say, I think it's the best news story. Uh, beyond the overpass and uh, agriculture is here to stay so everybody might as well get used to it but like you say if you want to come down i got a place for you to stay and we'll make sure you get out and see the operations and uh, i think you'll see a big difference and change your mind uh i'm not necessarily opposed to anything including agriculture i have been on an aquaculture site before but yeah. i appreciate the invite uh, you know when we have these conversations it's not in a in an effort to be all opposed or all in as opposed to just talk about everything that comes with it because the economic yep. impact is real. Some, for some, the economic
economic impact pales in comparison to the environmental impact. But of course, they weren't living in a community where the only hope to get a job was at one of these fish farms. So I get where you're coming from, Steve, and I always appreciate the time and the invitation. Yeah, I appreciate it too. Like I say, uh, anybody's welcome to come down, and uh, it was great. Uh, even at this uh, conference today, I mean, it's well attended, and uh, Noah has done a great uh, job again this year organizing it, and uh, we look forward to uh, to us coming. So uh, stay tuned. Appreciate the time. Thanks. Thank you. That's Mayor Steve Crew. He's the mayor of Hermitage, Sandyville. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number four. Diane, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I'm calling about the uh, gentleman that called in about the increases in the rent. Okay. Okay, Newfoundland Labrador Housing, their main purpose was to give people a chance to save up some money and buy a house, and I know several people who did exactly that. St. John's Housing, have uh, they can pay 25%, but they have a ceiling. They used to have it at 635. I don't know what it's at now. But most of the people who ended up living in that were government employees that were friends of the city who were getting 60 to 70% of their paycheck as their pension, plus their old age, plus any inventions, uh, investments they made. So they're living high on the hog while other people are doing without a place to live. They should be paying 25% if they're in St. John's housing. Okay. I mean, they can afford to go out and buy a house if they want. And so, I got that out of my system. So you have a specific person or family that you're referring to here? No, no. So just in general terms, that's what's going on? In general terms. Like over the years, I've known people who moved into Newfoundland Labrador housing uh-huh. and saved up their money for a down payment on a house and moved out of the housing and into their own homes. The way he put it, once you're in the housing, you're there. But what it is, once they're in them cheap rents to their, what, compared to what their income is, they got it made in the shade. So I think all government-backed housing should be 25% of your wages. Yeah, because on the national scheme, we're talking about the measure for how affordable your unit is is if you're spending 30% of your income on housing-related issues. So 25 seems like a well, re- pretty fair number. Well, it's still a reasonable, you know. Yeah, I, I get your point, yeah. And like I say, they can go out and they can afford to pay the high rents. Probably with their investments, they can go out and buy a new home. But isn't that how we measure who's eligible for a unit for St. John's Housing or Newfoundland Labrador Housing is income straight up? No, it isn't. Well, how do they measure it? Well, it is for Newfoundland Labrador Housing. You just have to apply to St. John's Housing. And there's no means test. I didn't know that. Well, they probably, I don't really know, Patty. Oh, uh, uh, something I could figure out, because I, I didn't know that. If that's the but case, I was unaware. Government employees, entire te- retired teachers and nurses and office workers, and I don't think there's very many down to judge by their income. Okay. And another thing, now that I'm on your line, get sure. off my chest, uh, Chief Boland, the reason why I'd say they didn't like him, there was nobody with any mental illness shot while he was there maybe he took their bullets and that's why he didn't like them because they couldn't go around shooting people i don't know why they didn't like him i guess because they made him play by the rules 
Yeah, I'm not sure what to say to that, to be honest. Yeah, well, there's nothing to say to it. And that constable that keeps, that's still an RNC constable that's been convicted of whatever he was, how come he's still on the force? Are you talking about Snellgrove? Yes. Okay. I couldn't think of his name. Yeah, no problem. So, look, I never refer to him as RNC Constable Douglas Snellgrove. I gave that up a long time ago. I guess you did. Yeah, well, like most people should. Technically, the issue is until the process is exhausted, and we're almost there because they've applied to be heard at the Supreme Court of Canada, and... I'm not going to say I hope or they do or do not hear his case, but until his legal avenues are 100% exhausted, technically, as per the rules and the collective bargaining, uh, he be, he remains a so-called constable. But once that is over, then forever and a day, he will either be former constable or simply prisoner Snellgrove. So is he still getting his uh, paycheck? No. No. All right, he should have been fired there after that happened, and no matter what spin he puts on it, he did wrong. Well, yeah, and the, the issue there is they've got protections uh, based on their collective bargaining agreement, right? So the association negotiates with the RNC, and, of course, I guess the Department of Justice is somehow involved in that, but the, no one could fire them the day after because the, the rules are in place. And they might be stupid rules, and they might be infuriating rules, but that's the case. That's the facts of the matter. So until he's legally exhausted every potential avenue that's technically the reference I don't use it because I don't feel like I should or I have no interest in using it personally and getting back to the house it popped in my mind my son had a heart attack and a stroke he can't work he's on uh, a social assistance he lives on $360 a month out of that he has to pay his electricity which isn't subsidized and because his rent is so high that's why he gets that amount but still, they, the provincial government, and this really gets my blood pressure up, is paying how many extra months for people staying to suites at the Holiday Inn that I can't afford to go to for lunch, that logo staying in the rooms, and then pay someone $1,000 to take them in their home. Put them on a goddamn plane and send them back where they came from. Not going down that road either. Uh, the $1,000, that's not government money. That's money's raised by the Association for New Canadians. There's a new 45-day eviction rule in place for stays in hotels and what have you. And, you know, pick, pack them up and send them back. Sure, we're the people who brought them over. Well, obviously, we're not good enough for them. Everything is not good enough for them. They're in the hotel. They don't like the, the housing. They don't like this. They don't like that. Goodbye. Okay, Diane. Alrighty. See ya. Thanks. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Jennifer, you're on the air. Hey, Patty. Hi. How is it going? So far, not too bad. How you doing? Good. Not too bad. Not too bad at all. Good. I'm caught talk, uh, wanting to talk to you about the housing thing. Sure. Okay. Now, they're having a problem with the housing. They let the housing go, the housing of Newfoundland, let it go. So long. They had a big waiting list. They still got a waiting list. Now they got double the problem. So why don't they start building, like, tiny homes or something like Mazana Park? Up on the up on McLaren, is it, or up, up wherever it is, a Walton's Mountain up that way? Why don't they build homes similar similar to that? No basements, no basements, just all one floor, 
the bedrooms, everything, all on one floor. That would be an easy solution. Fair enough. The issue yeah. regarding tiny homes, the only problem, or not only the problem, the hurdle there is yeah. for municipalities to want to zone them. So I've oh. long said, whichever community, oh. especially close by here on the Northeast Avalon, which, whichever yeah. municipality says, you know what, we will be the home for subdivisions that are all tiny homes, they will see people move to their community because there's plenty of folks out there. That's all they need. Oh, yes. That's yeah. simply all they need. They don't need yeah. a 1,200 square foot uh, bungalow with a basement necessarily. <laughs> they might like one, no. they might want one, but they might not need well, one. You take what you can get. But there are a lot of homes out there in the Newfoundland housing. Um, Livingstone Street is one. It should be all tore down. All tore down. Yes, that's for sure. Now, anyways, getting back to the smaller homes. Yes, they don't need two-story, three-story homes. They just not need something to eat, sleep, and that's it. And go to work. But what price tag will they put on them? It's got to be affordable for the people, especially a minimum wage. Minimum wage, I just uh, curiously, I read a story, I don't know, sometime earlier today and you know we talk about what is a livable wage in one part of the country or another in this city the last report said it was somewhere around 18 19 dollars an hour i just read a story from halifax the livable wage there they now consider to be around 26 dollars and 50 cents per hour so when we're talking about affordability that conversation has changed dramatically in the last five Mm -hmm. years i mean it's a completely different conversation and that's when it becomes tricky so people will ask for a livable wage as, as a result of provincial action, provincial government right. action. But a living right. wage in St. John's is not the same as a living wage in Cornerbrook or Burgio no. or Hermitage or Lab City. So I don't even know how we navigate that because there's not a one-size-fits-all. It's a different we, affordability yeah. issue. Exactly. We need a reasonable minimum wage. Yes, we need a definitely a minimum wage. You know, they got to look at everything. They all say, we got to pay this, we got to pay that. Well, we also have to pay for it, too. We have to pay our hydro. We have to pay our fuel for our vehicles, everything else. So, you know, the tiny home situation, the small, like Masani Park, should do. And for everybody, the people on the list before and after the Ukraine. We got we got to make sure we try and accommodate everybody, right? They're not coming in to Canada and getting a three-story home and think, oh, my God, this is gorgeous. No. People here work for that. They want to be not forgotten about. Uh, I don't think they are, uh, to be honest. Now, this is an update from the city of St. John's. They had changed the regulations to accommodate tiny homes here. But I think there's a hugely different conversation about a tiny home in town versus one in Pooch Cove versus one in Torbay. Now, of course, for many people, I don't know if they really care exactly which community they live in, if it's in this region of the province, close by family, friends, and their job. But anyway, I did not know that, so appreciate that info. Yes, and you know, something like you say, that's reasonable in price and whatnot. But yeah, Masonic up there, Masonic, uh, I don't know the area. I, I know where it is, 
Masonic Park. You're talking about a, like That's a trailer park. It's yeah, it's right on top of the McLaren. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a big area. Um, I think it's for senior senior people. It is, but something like that, something like that. That's what we need. Never mind this big tall apartment house or whatever, or apartment buildings. No, okay. that's no good. And yeah. what you're talking about is on Mount Carson. Yes, thank you. Yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> thank you. No problem. Yeah, something like that would be, like, uh, and a big lot, a big lot of land, and just build them all, build, build, build. I appreciate the call. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Take okay. care. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Look, uh, probably I'll ask the two uh, callers to wait for after the news so that we get a fair amount of time with them, but on things like that. Like, it's, it's great. I mean, there's one part of the city that's going to allow tiny homes here in the city of St. John's. Good news. And then people talk about build, build, build. And sometimes, in many people's minds, that means build out. I don't think we've done ourselves any favors with the build out versus build up concept. Now, yes, there's going to be a line of sight concerns in certain parts of the, of the city and all of those things that we've heard about as pushback from the residents that are already living there. But building out comes at a cost. It's not just about the land and the construction. It's about services and amenities and snow clearing and pavement and repairs and upkeep. So when we, you know, see a new subdevelopment that expands the footprint of the city or moves closer to the actual physical boundaries of the city of St. John's, it comes with a cost. We've kind of been... You know, we're, I don't know what the right word is. We're car-centric or maybe we're a bit car-crazy. But when we think about it and you evaluate and add up all the costs with building further afoot, further afield, it's not just the land because you got to pave a road to it. you got to put the water and sewer to it. you got to clear the snow. you got to fill the potholes. you got to put the sidewalks in. It's all of those things that come at, at a cost. So we might think we're solving one thing in one hand, but on the other side of that exact ledger, we're paying more. My property tax bill will go up if we start building further out, right? Now, it's not to suggest that we want the, the Bitterman houses to be built in the middle of the city where we've got already issues with traffic congestion and all the rest of it, but I think we need a bit more serious thought about what it means and what it costs and what the implications are of building out because I think a lot of cities are finding out the hard way. And you're wondering, what happened? I didn't improve my property. I didn't do any renovations. I haven't done anything about curb appeal. How come my property taxes are so high? Well, some of it is about expansion and improvement of services and, you know, the ongoing efforts for uh, delivery of water and picking up your garbage and filling the potholes and the snow clearing and all the rest of it. But when the cities that have really gone out of their way, I got a friend of mine who lives in Calgary. They, over the last 20 years, have built out in extraordinary fashion. And consequently, the cost of operating and managing and running the city have gone through the roof. Who pays for that? Property owners, right? Whether it be commercial, industrial, and or individuals in the residence. All right, let's uh, check on Twitter before the news. Where have you seen moving line? Follow us there. Uh, this account says the modern version of the trailer home is a modular home. Yeah, sure. Uh, people just refer to it as a trailer park. Yes, modular homes. You can get them built spec. They come on the back of a truck and be erected in a couple of days. Tiny homes, modular homes, whatever the case may be, it certainly can be part of the solution. We're taking your emails. It's openlinefacm.com. When we come back, Peter wants to talk about what's going on in Placentia Bay. Mark wants to talk about what he heard yesterday regarding the Premier's announcement. Which one? We'll find out. Don't go away. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Peter. You're on the air. Morning, buddy. I'd like to speak about uh, Placentia Bay and uh, the fish farming there that's taken place and has been taking place now for the last while. And, uh, you know, like, um, uh, but i just like to say first, like, this is not an attack on government. You know, uh, I'm not attacking government this morning because I really feel that Premier Fury and uh, his team, Legander Parsons and the and Krista, Krista Lynn Howell, and you know the, they're making a lot of progress in school and industry and and things like that. You know, and our credit rating has improved, so I really think that they're on the right track. But having said that, you know, I think that the same government is going to have to be more open and put fishing industry at at one at the top of one of those lists. And uh, here in Mosentia Bay right now. No one could ever imagine, I don't think, like the the, the structure that's being in, in the bay is now. And you got from up around Clattis Harbor uh, down to Bar Haven, that's on the western side. And that's a long ways, you know, you're talking hours of steaming. And uh, then you got the central channel. And, you know, there's plans uh, for the eastern, eastern side of the bay. But, you know, like fish harvesters. You know, like they're they're going ahead, and the minister and the companies this morning, and uh, the minister of fisheries there, going right straight ahead, and never once did they mention the commercial fishery in Placentia Bay, where there's hundreds of enterprises that are being displaced, being shoved out. Now, my 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 beef this morning is how that could take place without the proper consultation. I'm not saying about having a, a consultation or a meeting with fish officers out of courtesy so that we can move on and say that we had it. But a serious one, you know? And, and I, I can't see where the, the union... Well, I guess they're more interested in unionized the workers than they are protecting the ones that are already got unionized because I don't hear them saying anything on it either, you know? But... Patty, for the like of me, I heard Mr. Steve Crew, Mayor Steve Crew, under this morning for Hermitage, and I, I'm so happy for him and his community. But you know, like they're going to, they're they're farming the fish in Fortune Bay, and they're processing in Fortune Bay, and that, that's a great thing. But here in Placentia Bay, it's just the opposite. You know, they're farming them and displacing fish harvesters in Placentia Bay. But we got a union plant that I know about in, in St. Lawrence. We got one in Arnold's Cove, state of the art. And we got one here in Southern Harbor, non union, uh, a big multi plant. So, you know, why is it that they took the salmon that's being farmed here and bring them to another place? And, and government can stand by and let that happen. Now, I know that we got a PC member here, Jeff DeWire, but uh, we should be treated, uh, I think, equally. And for the like of me, I just want to say what's on my mind. I can't see how the fish harvesters and the plant workers 
can stand by and see this happen. Just a couple of uh, easy questions here, Peter. What would the implication between aquaculture, how does it complicate or interfere with commercial harvesters? Well, some of that, a lot of those farms, the distance you would have to steam is, is really a large amount compared to what you would normally have to steam just to get to your fishing gear back and forth. But that's that's only one. The other one is fixed gear like gillnets. You know, they got to be put into a certain place in order to catch fish. Like they're not just going to catch fish anywhere. And then you got other things like, well, sometimes there's a mackerel fishery in there, a caper fishery, uh, and there's a continuous, a continuous herring fishery here in Placentia Bay, and a good one. And there's fishers there from St. Mary's Bay, and there's fishers there from Placentia Bay. And uh, you know, like, that's a real, you know, no for those guys, because, you know, like, those herring could be in among those cages for weeks on end. Same as you would lie up against rocks and stuff like that, and you wouldn't be able to get at them. But now you got the rocks, the shoal water, and all the other things that prevent you from fishing. But now you get the cages also. And from Plattis Harbor, right down to the bottom of Placentia Bay on the west side, and in the central channel in Placentia Bay, it's really some of the best staining areas in the bay itself. You know, so, but you cannot forget the people who got to go to their lobster gear. You got to, can't forget about the people that got to go to their gillnets. And when they get there, they can't sit them. And when they do sit them in a certain place, then they got to do all this extra steaming to get around it. And, and even hearing nets, even hearing nets had to be put in a certain place. You're just not going to throw them out anywhere. And the hearing nets sometimes like the deeper water. As, uh, as some of those cages are in, you know? And so those issues that you're mentioning, they are compromised by the fish pens? Yes. Okay. And, yeah, and fishermen are being displaced. Are, no, they're not being displaced, Patty. They are displaced, whether they know it or not. They are displaced. You know, and, and there's so many other type of fisheries uh, that, that, that go around. You know, like... Uh, I, I just can't see, you know, like how we could have a government and not. Uh, they're, they're the ones really that's, that's really responsible because they're the ones that issued the permits, starting off with, uh, I forget his name now in Corner Brook. Uh, but, you know, like uh, it's got to be looked at in a different way, and there's got to be some way that someone's going to have to sit down and talk with fish harvester, you know, how are we going to deal with this in the future? Now, in Southern Harbor here, we got lots of salmon boats to come in and tie up and stuff like that, and there's lots of people working in the salmon's industry. But nobody, I'm, that's not my thing this morning to hurt those people in any way. But at the same time, they must understand, those companies and the government, that you cannot do this to people who's been here for centuries, you know, doing the same thing in the same place, and all of a sudden you come in, I say, no, no, get that the hell out of the way. You know, we're putting a cage there, and that's it, and that's that. You know, like, and, uh, and you know, like, and the government giving us the thumbs up. And, you know, here here it is, you know, like, uh, they're losing money, they're losing time, and they're displaced because of the, they're totally displaced because the pins are there. You know, you're talking football fields. You're, oh, my God, what am I saying? Is Look, 
the mayor of Hermitage asks you to come visit his place, I encourage you to do a flyover in Placentia Bay, or CBC or NTV News do a flyover, and just tell the people just exactly how many miles of uh, this, this cage displacement has taken up regarding the fishermen. Fair enough. I'm pretty sure it's not in my budget <laughs> to uh, have a flyover in Placentia Bay, but I'd be curious to see it from the air just to understand the magnitude of that, even that just one particular. We're talking Greg, I suppose, are we, Peter? Yeah, we're talking Greg's, and there's more. Like, I haven't got it all down pat, you know, like, but see, people get the, their backs up. Like, I've been getting called from Harvesters, oh, for the last, what, year? But I never did really come out and, and say much about it, you know, because I, I thought the powers to, to be, you know, like uh, like FFAW and, uh, and you know, like, uh, uh, anyway, uh, CNL, even those, you know, they're taking uh, they're taking the harvester's money too for membership and stuff like that. You know, they, they could come out and uh, be a bit more aggressive. And, and the union could be a bit more aggressive, you know, and the government could be a bit more aggressive. It may be fine this morning for the companies, and it may be fine for the people who got full-time jobs and things like that, and I'm happy for them. But, you know, for the ones that are being displaced, we can't be happy. And, you know, if this comes to a fight, Patty, the way I'm hearing it, we're going to be on an even scale this time because the pins are on the water and the fishermen are on the water. And that's something, you know, like... Those companies and this government, you know, should take into consideration. You know, like the people of Presentia Bay are pretty good when it comes to protecting themselves on an even playing field. Okay, point taken. I mean, we can see if the union would like to respond. Certainly, we'll have a conversation in the very near future with the fisheries minister, and this can be part of that conversation, Peter. Uh, anything else before I take one quick one before the break? Well, maybe CNL could step up to the the plate. You know, and maybe the fishermen's union could worry about the, their uh, members that are already paid up instead of worrying about ones that they want to join this organization. And the minister could probably explain why the why this, all this infrastructure in Placentia Bay, and then they're taking it and moving it out of the bay, whether given our plant workers in Placentia Bay the same work. That's going to hit in Hermitage. And, Patty, thanks for your time, and have a nice day. You too, Peter. All the best. All the best. Okay, uh, there we go. Uh, before we get to the break, let's go to line four. Fred, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Good show as usual. Thank you. I, I'm calling, and I was trying to check on the situation from the heaven in the health signs yesterday afternoon. I haven't heard anything on the news or no update on it, but uh, we had a family member in for surgery. He's down in the surgery room, prepped up and all already for his surgery, and all of a sudden everything is cancelled because something went wrong in the health signs or the air conditioning, whatever. They had shut down all surgeries now. You know, you can't seem to get phone in and get found out what happened. Are everything going back on normal? Are everything going back ahead? The schedule anything like that, but there's no word or nothing about it, you know? I just wondered. Well, you know what? I have no idea. Uh, but I can see what I can find out. I know people who work in the Health Sciences Center. They probably know exactly what went on. If I can find out before the end of the show, I'll speak to it on the program. Okay, appreciate it, Betty. No problem, Fred. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Okay, Bye. take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I didn't even hear that. Did you, Dave? that things got cancelled uh, abruptly yesterday. So if you're listening and whether or not you're working at the Health Sciences or at the Health Sciences or actually know what went on there to see those cancellations, 
Well, I'd appreciate the information. Uh, let's take a break. Mark, you're next to talk about the Premier's announcement yesterday. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Mark. You're on the air. Hey, Patty. How are you doing today? Hanging tough. How about you? Not bad. I uh, just wanted to call you and your listeners and express the frustration that I feel and that I know my community feels that the Premier came down yesterday to make an announcement that really had no nothing to it. Um there was the opportunity there for the premier to announce something of substance. We've asked for many things. We've been advocating very diligently in this neighborhood. I live on Livingstone Street. You know, the neighborhood is is struggling. And we were hoping, to, we were honestly hoping for something. Um, so it's, it's super frustrating, Patty. With the announcement, I, I suppose we're just talking about the well-being week issue, right? Yeah, it was just a hey, we're gonna talk about well, you know, well-being is important this week. Social determinants of of health are important this week. Well, this is what we've been talking about for years, and how it impacts us is we're in a we're in a crisis right now. Like we need we need something. Okay, so. I've followed along as close as I could the issues regarding the health accord and the subcommittees and we've had Dr. Parfrey and Sister Elizabeth Davis on many, many times. And actually, during Wellbeing Week, we're going to speak with different people, including the aforementioned two at the helm of Health Accord and Dr. Connors and all the rest. But inside the issues regarding the social determinants of health, there's actually one of the very first is access to safe housing. So what were you expecting yesterday as a a tangible policy shift or a tangible announcement to deal with things in your neighborhood. What, what was missing? I have an idea, but We've, I'm going to let you say it. Yeah. I mean, you and I have talked about it a lot. Uh, any of those aspects, really, housing, mental health and addictions, poverty supports, um, anything that could really deal with the crisis that's ongoing. The, all, I mean, we're very aware of, of the issue of addictions and mental health supports that are needed in this province. So that's an obvious one, and it's coming to the province from every angle right now. Uh, and, and so for them not to be able to say something, I mean, is you know, that's, the, that's the type of substance that we were looking for. We're looking for things like, I mean, even yesterday, Patty, uh, sorry, I should back up a little bit. Like We've been addressing these issues with the ministers responsible for two years. They all know what the issues are we've been we've been involved we've we've volunteered to provide information and to provide uh, substantial evidence of things that are needed uh, of the issues that are ongoing um and really like to to sort of come down and, and just say you know we're we're gonna start talking about this stuff it, it's it's sort of a slap in the face i spoke with the premier directly and he said stay tuned and i've heard him say that before and I told them that. I said, I've heard you say that before. We need action. We don't need, we don't need stay tuned. We need something of substance is going to happen. And one thing that we, that I brought up yesterday, Patty, I mean, it's obviously the NL housing units that are, that are boarded up need to be fixed. That's, there's some economic concerns there, I suppose. But, you know, on the other side, we're paying for people. We're already paying for these things to be done. Like we're paying uh, you know, through Tom Osborne's department, tw- up to twenty five, three thousand, twenty five hundred, three thousand, thirty five hundred dollars a month 
to house people who are difficult to house. We don't have the sub, the supervised or the various levels of supervised housing that's required in this city and in this province, and it's causing all kinds of issues. I can tell you, you know, over the past two years, and really we could go back to when Joey Whalen was murdered in 2013. Like we have been addressing these issues with the province and with various levels of government, and we've seen nothing. I've been through your neighborhood. Uh, man, it's it's depressing. It's scary. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It's all. Yeah. It's a bunch of different emotions wrapped up into one. So, governments are not great at doing things quickly they're not great at doing things concurrently so is there a priority list of things that you think would make a meaningful difference is it supervised housing is it an expansion of mental health care i think we need to do all the things at the same time personally to get where we need to be in short order but because governments are notoriously not great at that what's the priority list look like i mean we've we've addressed this within our own community and I know for a fact that government has the experts and the knowledge to be able to put their list together of what, you know, the priorities and what needs to be done right away. But they haven't done it. Okay. Um, you know, one of the one of the like I think of these things, you know, I, I'm very practical about this. I'm a farmer like you, you can't not be practical when you're a farmer. Um, I've also worked in politics, so I understand that world there. We've we've given them examples of very low-hanging fruit. Here's one, Patty. We have units that are operated by slum landlords, and I'll just use that term because that's what people understand, but, you know, take it as you, as, you, as you like. We've got units, and I dealt with one yesterday where one of these landlords simply, you know, like, no eviction notice, no five-day eviction, simply took the doors off the apartment, took all the appliances out, removed the phone, Remove the r- remove the Wi-Fi. Everything's gone. So <laughs> I saw that. Do? But is that actually there. that's against the law, though, isn't it? Well, it is. But you know, and it's against the law. It's Section fifty-one of the Residential Tenancies Act. But where is Minister Studley on this? We've addressed this with Minister Studley. We've sent emails. We've received you know the odd thanks for emailing. But like y- you know, who who is who is dealing with this kind of issue when this happens? Who deals with it? Why is she not dealing with it? Uh, it's really frustrating to just see this repeat over and over in the neighborhood. And it, it's like you said, you know, it's, it's sad. It's, it's depressing. It's sad. This, this unit in particular is, it's disgusting inside, you know, like, and we as taxpayers, if you look at the economics of it, we as taxpayers are paying for this. So it's, it's in everybody's best interest to lift all boats. Um, we need to we need to make sure that these folks, you know, that the folks that we're supporting have have a a, a living situation that's that's reasonable. I mean, you you and I would probably look at that place and run away. Um, we're paying, like I said, Tom Osborne's department is paying twenty five hundred, three thousand, thirty five hundred. Like the mental health and addiction supports for housing are substantial, and they're probably needed. Because we just we need to house people, but that money could be so much better spent. And unfortunately, you're going to have to do both at the same time for a little bit. Um, you know, you had a call about the uh, uh, mobile housing, uh, the modular housing. Look, you know, those 
have been proven to work in other jurisdictions. Um, Vancouver popped them up and, you know, they've made a plan. Nine months later, they were putting a, a unit, um, they were installing a unit a day at a time and they were building them. I mean, they're available. Like you can just buy them tomorrow and put them up somewhere. But this is the kind of like, this is the kind of quick thinking that we're not seeing. And for the premier to come down to our neighborhood who has, and we've been struggling and to, to not have anything concrete, it's super frustrating. Understood, Mark. I, I appreciate the time. I think some of the sometimes things get wrapped up into one easy catch-all phrase, and we probably don't do a great job in dissecting it. You know, like bullying or affordable housing and the social determinants of health. While people are clamoring for doctors and nurses and reduced wait times, whether it be for a specialist or an emergency room or whatever, I get all that. And it's, of course, important because that's the immediacy of the need. Same thing when you talk about housing. But in that side, that world of social determinants of health, I can't find any other way to approach thinking about that other than this. If we get that right, the rest of it doesn't settle itself. It's not like the budget balances itself or any of those silly things people latch onto. But if you get that right, many of the other complicating factors in healthcare will be immediately improved. They just will because we strictly have a reactive system. Get sick, go to the hospital, right? Feel feel poorly, go to the emergency room. Break your leg, go to the emergency room. Diabetes because of a sedentary lifestyle diet, well, then we've got to see a doctor. If we're talking about access to safe housing, level of education, uh, the amount of money you have coming in, access to good food, clean water, equitable treatment in the justice system, those things matter. And there's ways to deal with public policy that is directly involved with that. Even if we back out what it means for the cost of delivering health care, even if we back out even the conversation of what it means for health care and the delivery system, period. Getting those things right makes it better. Getting those things right makes the community healthier, safer. Education outcomes will improve. Health care outcomes improve. So we just, for the life of me, have to stop thinking about infrastructure and health care and simply doctors and nurses and LPNs and nurse practitioners and personal care attendants and physiologists. That's important. But those things take time. Those things are tough. These things are the betterment of the community, the end. So the outcomes that we'll see as a result of real strict attention to, and I don't know what, how, what the answers are and what the pub, public policy looks like to the letter about how to deal with that, but if we don't focus on that first, then the rest of it will be chasing our tail forever and a day. Agreed. Agreed entirely. I mean, Patty, like some of this stuff can be just conversations. Yep. Really, like, you know, Departments do not speak to each other. Uh, they, you know, in my experience, most of my experience has been with the federal House of Commons. In dealing with the province, it's been incredibly embarrassing, and this is since like 2011. It's been embarrassing to see the level of information, uh, how information is shared. Some of this is just interdepartmental conversations. Why are we play, why are we why are we dealing with you know the department? Does the Department of Health talk to CSSD? Does residential tenancies you know uh, in, in enforce some of the issues that are ongoing within some of the houses that are supported by other departments? Um, is justice speaking with these departments? These are you know and and then if you continue that, like the city of St. John's, I've I've spoken to one of the counselors down there who is like we took a whole. Uh, proposal to the provincial government to be able to inspect these houses that are problematic landlords. 
uh, but it didn't go anywhere, Patty. And, and so, like, you know, the, some of these are just don't cost anything. They're just conversations and agreements. Yeah, well, cohesive, I mean, I know government is a behemoth, but and I'm sure there is levels of conversation, but whether or not it's continuous enough and there's a, a deep, a greater understanding, maybe some of that could be with uh, shuffling around some senior faceless, nameless bureaucrats a little bit more frequently as opposed to ministers with a revolving door. Uh, Mark, i got to get to the news, but I appreciate the time. I appreciate you taking my call. Thanks, Patty. All the best. And uh, I hope I hope we all can get somewhere with with these issues. They're only going to get worse if we don't. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Bye bye. And that's not saying that the government has done nothing about some of these issues, but you see it in your community, right? And there is a direct relationship between those social determinants of health and every wait time related matter, and a lot of the crime related matters. I mean, like we talked about earlier, right? Just look what's going on in the Crown Prosecutor's Office. If you don't think some of that has to do directly with the social determinants of health, I think we're kind of missing a big part of the conversation. Very quickly before the news. So I want to give a shout-out to the good folks at the Arnold's Cove... Arnold's Cove Lions Club, sorry. So they got to chase the ace. Thursday nights, 7 o'clock to 8.15. The draw takes place at 8.30 sharp at the Lions Club. The jackpot is starting at almost $11,000. Their club was resettled from Harbor Buffett back in the 60s. They need some big repairs to their building. Last chase the ace, they donated $55,000 to the Tricentia Academy Playground in Arnold's Cove. So uh, also a big donation to the Arnold's Cove Fire Department. So if you love the chase the ace, who doesn't? Thursday nights at the Arnold's Cove Lions Club, 7 to 8.15, and the draw takes place 8.30 sharp. There you go. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Dave's there to talk about the Zone 6 management plan for forestry. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 5.45 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. How about you? Not bad, sir. Not bad at all. Good. Just uh, living the dream here in the West Coast, Newport. Fair ball. Glad to hear it. <laughs> the reason I'm calling in this morning, <clears throat> Patty, is uh, I don't know if it's a normal process, due process, or whatever, but we, in the past couple of days in this region, learned of uh, Crown Zone 6 is a five-year forestry operating plan that takes in a very, very large area on the western and northern uh, points of the island, um, extends from Burgio, Port of Basque area in the south to Deer Lake, and then northeast to Sally's Cove in the north. And it involves, I guess, basically a proposed commercial and domestic uh, timber harvesting operations. And I don't think this is like a new process or anything. It's been done before. Um, I've had a chance to look at part of it since I heard about this taking place. And it appears that there may be a little bit more territory opened up for domestic harvesting, which I I assume that that's wood cutting or, say, like log cutting for private sawmills or something, as well as like residential purpose or whatever. It doesn't define it, and I'm not 100% sure on that. But what I am sure is that it seems to have been very, very quiet and has caused a lot of alarm in our area, and it doesn't take much now to get people speculating and wondering what's taking place. You know, you hear it all from 
clear-cutting for windmills to mineral exploration and, and mine setups. And I've, I've heard just about everything that you could think that would be like the the dark cloud behind this. But what I'm getting at and should be done today is actually the deadline for public comments. Uh, the undertaking was registered July 31st. Um, and the minister's decision is due by September 14th. And basically, no municipal leaders, none of the indigenous groups' leaders, seem to have ever heard of it or known about it or have had any input into it. So I guess what they're, what what's been asked, and I've been asked by a couple of people to call in, was be to ask Minister Byrne Davis to extend the deadline and allow for public input because it sure appears that not too many knew that this was coming. And I think what people are trying to avoid without adding fuel to the rumor possibility of what could be taking place or this dark after plan, I think people don't want to repeat what we've recently seen in forestation management in areas such as Glance, Taylor's Brook, 38 Trail, where once beautiful, vibrant-looking areas were turned into the desert, clear-cut right to river's edges, no real buffer zones left between tributaries or ponds and whatever, and just something that didn't take place years ago. When Avatibi was here, government was seemingly more involved in forestation and forest management. You didn't see the level of clear-cutting that takes place now, and I, I'm pretty sure that that's aimed at the, at the paper mills and others finding the closest economical wood that they can to the mill, no matter where it's located. We've seen people's cottage lives completely thrown to ruin, um, areas that were fit to develop no longer are. So there's a few question marks there. And sure. the deadline for, for public input, of course, being today, it seems quick. And we would ask Byrne Davis and maybe the Premier to look at extending this. And I've been prompted, like I said, Patty, and I don't want to dominate this conversation because I'm just getting these points out and I hear what you think now. But uh, I don't think it's asking too much for an extension on this so that it does allow for some public input. Well, public input is important, especially when we don't really know what some of the terms might mean. Domestic cutting, my understanding is, there's not everywhere in the province you can even apply for a domestic cutting wood permit, a domestic wood cutting permit. So unless that designation is offered to a zone, then it's not even available. So that's one. Clear cut, I think, also comes with a very clear distinction. You know, when we talk about the clear cut uh, concerns people had out in around, say, Terranova, because those applications look different or worded different than simply commercial access, because a clear cut is complete devastation. Commercial access comes with all sorts of reforestry, uh, reforestation policies and the like. So. I think there are different things, but until there's answers to very fundamental questions, then of course people in the area would be concerned, whether it be simply about environmental issues or cabin country or uh, ponds or rivers or tributaries, sure. So an extension when people don't have answers to the most basic questions can't be a bad thing. I don't think it's being unfair or being judgmental to even ask for that. I, you know, we we've all wish for and hope for transparency from government. I don't know what level we'll ever get or what level is acceptable or what even 
people expect. But this one, having reached out and asked most municipal leaders like that should be in a position of no on things like this, because I'm sure I'm the common Joe, and maybe I'm not on the informed list, as I've said, but it should be in such a massive swath of undertaking and, and this plan that would affect so many people in one way or another you would think that this process would be more public and that these answers would be readily available, even with, within what I've read and what I've been able to find on this management plan. Um, and by the way, the proponent is Department of Fisheries, Forestries, and Agriculture. I just saw that. I clicked on the map. Yeah, I clicked the map while we were talking. Yeah. yeah, so uh, I think it's 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 definitely inherent upon these people that you should inform what this means, how it impacts our lives, and what it basically does to the to the region. Because if it, the proposal is anything that supports what was done in and around, like I said, the Glance area, uh, man, that's just wrong. And I mean, <clears throat> trees fight. <clears throat> pardon me. Trees fight CO2, and I was led to believe that cutting too many of them down was not exactly a great idea. They're what the best natural defense that we've got to uh, that issue, and I, I would assume that is not clear-cutting. We should be looking at planting a lot more trees and having some, uh, some natural uh, things that take care of CO2, because I don't think that my carbon tax dollars have really done very much. I appreciate the call, Dave. I'm off to the final break of the morning. Thanks, Peter. You know what? Thank you very much, buddy, and I urge all community leaders and people that are involved with our local indigenous bands to ask some questions and demand some answers. Appreciate the time. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Dave. Take care. All right, bye-bye. bye-bye. Final break of the morning. Pam, you stay right there. She's got a concern about getting an appointment at the Janeway. And then, Nelson, you'll have the final word. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number one. Pam, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? I'm doing okay. Um, I just wanted to discuss today. I'm, I'm having some issues. I've, you know, they've been ongoing. Um, trying to get a referral to the Janeway Family Center for my young child. Um, I, I've I've started doing that back in 2019, and it was repeatedly denied and cancelled. Um, I was told that social workers with child protection were terminating my application. Um, for whatever reason they were citing, you know, whether it be a file open or not on either parent. But right right now today, um, really concerned that my request for, you know, child services through the Janeway Family Center has again been terminated um, for a child that's clearly in crisis. And, you know, I'm told that um, CSSD has again gotten involved and they terminated the order. And when I reached out to the social worker, she identified that um, she had a social worker that in her office that would counsel my child, who is not who is not a counselor in any way. And again, I find this disturbing. Um, I've, I've got medical staff involved in the past, and you know they were told by various other professionals that they wouldn't accept referrals because it was um, a custody. You know, it was a custody and, and family law matter, and they weren't getting involved. And, you know, even just trying to get them services through family, Jimmy Family Center, I feel like I'm being scolded, um, told I have to sign a place, a safe plan where, you know, I, I won't subpoena professionals to court to testify. And, you know, my young, young child's basic human rights have been violated over and over again. He's been denied, you know, a, 
medical doctors. He's been denied access to medical doctors. And again, pediatrician in the past refused to see him. And she cited in the letter that it was a custody and access issue. She wasn't getting involved uh, because the child was having emotional issues. So, you know, where a child is, is, is having emotional concerns or issues, um, regardless if it's because of, you know, a cut on, on their finger or, or a custody issue, they, they're still entitled to, you know, mental health and physical health services here in this province. Um, you know, I reached out to the Minister of Health uh, on two occasions now over the last two weeks, today being the most recent, and, and no one's getting back to me. And I find, you know, where, where this bias comes in with the social workers, you know, they're, they're legally not allowed to terminate health care. I don't understand. I can't wrap my mind around why the Janeway will not process my application for child services and, and, you know, trying to create the illusion that there's a counselor involved with their department when there isn't, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. I'm looking for assistance. Just so I have an understanding here, what's the issue regarding custody and getting an appointment at the Janeway? Um, I think I missed the, the crux of that issue. So how, wh- why is your child unable to get an appointment at the hospital? They're, they're, the hospital is saying that they've been informed and they they named the social worker. They specifically told me directly they were informed by said social worker that they were not to take a referral from me. So I'm a legal parent, right? Um, you know, regardless of applications to the court back and forth from, from parents over years or whatever the situation is, you know, legal parents, you know, both myself and the father have have uh, full parental rights as, as it relates to mental, you know, medical and whatnot. And I'm told by them repeatedly that social workers are intervening and telling them not to take referrals. And, and the, the professional staff have actually told me that. And again, like the, I'm, this isn't against the Janeway. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm attacking the Janeway uh, intake staff or central intake for the Janeway. But, you know, I've advised them they're legally not allowed to refuse me access to. And I've even engaged the child youth advocate who, again, has told them, you have to take this application from uh, this individual. It has to be you know go the process but you know and I've tried this before and you know they've always taken the application from me but usually when it gets to the counselor they'll call me and say well I was talking to the to a social worker and and she said that this really has no no bearing on counseling and that it's a you know custody and access issue and that tends to be the brand that gets tossed around and I mean I've even you know reached out to my MHA in the past because of other issues I have and when social workers and and, you know lawyers for the Department of Justice I guess are advising these social workers and telling them it's a custody an access issue, it really, you know, goes to the core of via violating human rights. So here I have a young child who nobody's arguing is in absolute crisis, denied access to a qualified, certified, independent third party, which would be, you know, a counselor with the JMA Family Services. Um, it's 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 absolutely impossible. And I even reached out to private counselors in the community and did referrals to them, and they were never picked up, and they never told me why. Um, and and until late, like I was unable to confirm the names of the individuals who were canceling these applications. But you know, I'm speaking to the Minister of Health today. I'm speaking directly to his office. There's no justification for someone refusing to take an application for mental health services for a child or or canceling doctor's appointments and calling them needless. It's no social worker has the authority or the power to do this. And I'm extremely concerned that this is being supported by the solicitors for CSSD at the Department of Justice. They know who they are, and I'll address it in court. But, you know, this this covering up and hiding of, of emotional distress is, it, you know, goes to the to the very core of human rights. I don't know where else to turn. I need the Minister of Justice to return my phone calls, and I will keep calling. 
As you should. Uh, like most stories regarding childhood family services and custody battles and whatnot, it's impossible for me to know exactly what's going on, to even try to be helpful with the next steps. If you have a legal uh, issue here that can be, you know, hopefully find a solution to your problem, then let's hope that that's exactly what takes place. But I struggle with these types of calls because I don't really know what's going on. Do you know what I, I mean? I- I do. I listen to your callers sometimes. I'm wondering, you know, there's a lot more to it, but you know, there's no, there's no legal argument for denying a child access to mental health services. No, of course not. There's no, there's none. And you know, again, both parents here have have legal decision making authority. There's no reason, you know, for for CSSD to say, you know, oh well, we have a counselor here who's not a counselor. It's a registered social worker, not a counselor under any any certification whatsoever. And try and mask that and hide that, and you know, again, apply their bias and and try to to mitigate and hide the situation. It's it's disturbing to me that there's no oversight in that department. And you know, we need more investigative journalists in in the province. I mean, I've reached out to investigative journalists on the mainland, and there's some pretty uh, powerful journalists out there. And uh, you know, I hope they appreciate and realize the power they have. Because parents cannot get their stories told. And, you know, this this force, this, you know, child protection in this problem, they're dangerous. They're breaking the law. But they're breaking Pam, the law. The only problem dangerous. there is, look, it's fine for someone to want an investigative journalist to do X, Y, or Z and stuff like this. But it becomes... Uh, unbelievable task when there's a minor involved. You just can't get a look at records. There's a privacy issues that no, that are impenetrable. So as much as you'd like to see someone do something like you're suggesting, they basically just get a he said, she said. Because you can't get any records, you can't talk to the social worker, you can't petition the courts for any information because when there's a minor, that's it. That is absolutely it. So every journalist, the most powerful journalist in this country, will run into the exact same roadblocks. They'll simply get your side of the story, the uh, the father's side of the story, and no more. I understand that. I do. And and as a parent, I, I've been denied access to my own records and, and my child's records. So, you know, the force is there, but there's a way around that, you know, transparency. We need it. It's just DSSD and, you know, we talk about this and often other institutions need to have transparency. Like, how is CSSD, you know, social workers able to operate the way they do? You know, it's the things they've done are, are criminal in nature. And I mean, I'm just trying to be mean and talking, you know, in, in offensive and insulting ways. I mean, literally under the criminal code, they've broken the law and they they have no reason to answer for it. And when they, you know, get together in this pack mentality and they cluster and, you know, I could think even the Minister of Health calling them up and saying, hey, I want to look at that. They're legally not allowed to. Like For the Minister of Health to get involved, CSSD is going to turn around and say you're not allowed to get involved with child custody matters. It's the law. But CSSD operates under absolute obscurity nobody's allowed to look in nobody it's it's completely insane and it should never be allowed to happen in canada the legislation needs to be changed and i can appreciate appreciate a child needing anonymity and protection but they're doing so criminally and there's a way to change that and that's the legislation so i'm speaking to the minister of health today and i'm telling them there's no legal justification for the janeway family center staff to say to any parent Okay, we'll have to leave it there because we've cleared 12 o'clock, but I appreciate your time and your concern. Thank you so much, Patty. Thank you, Pam. Bye-bye. All right, uh, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.